Meanwhile, back at the Hall of Justice, our mild-mannered podcasters were bombarded by gamma rays, bitten by radioactive bugs, mutated by toxic waste, irradiated with cosmic rays, born into a world that doesn't understand them. First issue. Hello, everybody. It is Wednesday, December the 17th, 2014, and you are listening to the Talking Comics Podcast. I am your host, Bobby Shortle, and I'm in the house with Steve Say. Stage dive. Mr. Bob Ryer. Ho, ho, ho. And on the line with Ms. Stephanie Cook. Bonjour, comment ça va? Hello, everybody, and welcome to our last normal show of 2014. <laughs> what are you calling normal? <laughs> Um, uh, the next few weeks, you'll be hearing our best of 2014 ah. shows, uh, which are obviously a little bit more, uh, a little bit different in format than the show you're listening to tonight. Uh, we've already recorded those, so you guys can look forward to hearing those uh, very, very soon. Um, we're, today, we're going to be talking to 2014 writer extraordinaire Joshua Williamson, writer of Ghosted, Nailbiter, um, Birthright, Captain Midnight, Predator, Robocop. You got him. You got him all on that one. Um, we'll be speaking to him later. Something tells me it's going to be a fun interview. I, have, oh, I, I think I've, so, I, too. I have a feeling. I have a feeling. I have a feeling that <laughs> Stephanie will also mysteriously not be with us for that interview. But you'll never know because I bet you he's such a good guest. It's true. He, is, true. he, he, he will be a very yeah. great guest. Barely uh, knew we were there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's true. Um, so look forward to you guys hearing that. That will be at the regular kind of topic portion of the show. But, but... Let's get right into it, guys. Let's start talking about some freaking comics. Huh? Yeah. Um, we're going to hop right into lightning round times. And I think we're going to have, for our last show, we have to do traditional. So I think Bob will be the first one to go for this lightning round. Let me get the uh, the old timer ready to go here. We have three minutes on the clock. Bob, go. Okay. Avengers 39, which begins as a story told as a letter from Reed to Valeria. And it's a nice premise. And it mostly hangs together. Except there's some really intrusive battle sequences that seem to spoil the mood a little bit because it was sort of lovely to see the family reconnecting. They've been so apart in these books. Hey, of course, you know, not too many more of these to go before time runs out as usual. <laughs> Nightcrawler number nine, which has just really been super all the way through. This is a continuation of the battle with the Shadow King and includes some flashbacks to classic X-Men days, particularly nice moments with Kitty Pride in their early days. Claremont and Todd Knock are just really continuing this month after month. If you're not buying this book and are a fan of the old X-Men, I think the first trade is out. Not, I think maybe so. Maybe like a month ago, but mm. definitely give this a shot. It's been just a heck of a lot of fun. Speaking of old-timey stuff, it is issue four of Star Trek New Visions, the photo novels that John Byrne is doing. This one is actually a completely original story, but it's got three protagonists from three other old episodes all posing, posing a whole lot of trouble for James T. Kirk, and who, who isn't quite himself in this issue because, well, there's stuff going on. 
<laughs> anyway, I, you can't you can't ruin the joke. So I'm just if you love Star Trek, you'll you'll like. Got to keep them on more, Bob. Yeah. Um, George Perez's Sirens number two of six is out, and I have to go. But I have to say, I read issue two and didn't get much out of it because I can't understand it. It is so dense. <laughs> I have to go re- read one to understand two. It is very old fashioned comic storytelling with the usual. George Perez, crazy panel layouts, some of them, you know, 14 of them a page, and yet filled with tiny details of little doodads on earrings and hair curls and whatever. It's just sensational. So that's number two, and that's from Boom. And then I do have a lot of time. As you, you do. <laughs> uh, speaking of old-timey stuff, I got in as a Christmas gift from our friend Jackie Turner from Talking Games, this book called Mail Order Mysteries, Real Stuff from Old Comic Book Ads. So it's X-ray specs and 100 army men and how to be oh, Charles neat. Charles Atlas. <laughs> Those Charles Atlas ads are reappearing in the Marvel books this month. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Full page redo of that. So it's army men, hot air balloons, Frankenstein posters and the whole mess. What a cool book. It's very cool. And really interestingly, because the back cover of one of the books we're all going to be talking about is exactly one of these old ads. <laughs> and we won't say which one. So mm. that will come up soon. That's it for me. All right. Good. Great job as always, Bob. Mm-hmm. T- bringing out 2014 in style. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I looked it up. Nightcrawler was November 25th. Oh, okay. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. Um, a perfect Christmas gift, maybe, for that classic X-Man fan in your life. Dun, dun, Nicely dun, done. Marvel better send us a check. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Um, Steve, you ready for some lightning round? Yeah. All right. And go. Uh, well, after loving Rocket Raccoon number five, I got me some Rocket Raccoon number six. And this finds Rocket kind of going around doing his thing to earn money, um, own up on favors that he might owe people and such. And so he comes to find himself meeting up with Cosmo, who, if you saw Guardians of the Galaxy, was the dog in the astronaut's outfit. Mm -hmm. There's a whole other history to him, but I don't have time for that because I only have three minutes. But uh, basically, Cosmo says that there is a mech that he basically wants Rocket to escort him to this place where there's like a black market mech sale going on. And he wants to free his people and do the whole thing. Cosmo also has his own reasons for wanting him to go on this mission, but I'm not going to spoil that. What I will spoil, though, is uh, the next name is Brute, and he has a very limited dialogue. So just to give you a little slice of what this uh, has going on for it, Rocket says to Brute, he goes, let's go, Brute. If you're anything like my regular partner who seems to take his vacations anytime I actually have some work to do, then I'm screwed and your friends might be too. And Brute says, one zero 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 one 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 zero one zero one. Rocket just says, classic. <laughs> so if you want more uh, good stuff from Rocket Raccoon, definitely pick up number six. I almost dropped the series. I am totally back on it with numbers five and six. It's awesome. Uh, another absolutely fantastic book from this past week was um, Jason Aaron and Jason Latour's Southern Bastards, number six. Um, I almost asked you a question about the other day, but I'm not going to. I'm not going to do that. Um, this issue was super intense. I know people had, um, they had mentioned that number four was super good. It showed up on a bunch of the uh, end of year lists from our listeners and stuff like that. Uh, I reread it, and yes, it was really awesome. This one, I, in my opinion, is just as good, if not better. We're now getting into the um, kind of the history of the boss character. So the whole story, the whole perspective from arc one to arc two has switched from like almost anti-hero to villain. 
and we're getting a little bit of backstory and it's not quite the backstory you would imagine. So I, I don't know if Jason Aaron's trying to get us to sympathize with the villain of the book, but if that's his plan, he's doing a pretty damn good job of making wow. it interesting. So um, his character too. <laughs> yeah, and you know, it's one of those it's one of those issues that anytime that I read Southern Bastards, I immediately feel like I have to take like an acid bath <laughs> after I'm done. Like I, I, I don't know. It's crazy. But uh, yeah, really, really enjoying this book a lot. And um, Jason Latour's artwork and this whole red, brown, orange uh, color palette that he's using is just really, really haunting and bloody and fits that whole hot Southern football vibe very well. And that's it for awesome. me for 2014. It, uh, it might be the first time you've nailed the timing on the lightning round. Second time. Second time. There was true. one other time it's where I, I hit just as the thing went <laughs> off. It's true. It's it true. was amazing. But it's a good way to take out 2014. Yeah. All right, Stephanie. Hello. Are you ready? I, I think I could be. All right. <laughs> if you think you could be, let's let's bring it on. Okay. All right. Go. Oh, I think I can do it. Uh, all right, so I've only got a couple books for my lightning round, and the first one is Flash Gordon. Uh, that's written by uh, it's well from Dynamite. It's written by uh, uh, Jeff Parker and art by uh, Evan Shaner and colors by colorist extraordinaire Jordi Belair. Uh, we've never heard of her, obviously, because <laughs> she's never worked on anything. Um, anyways, so I'd never read anything Flash Gordon before. Um, and while the first issue, I, I felt like it was one of those kind of weird first issues where there was a lot going on from a residual series. Uh, so there was a bit of confusion. Like, I was like, who's this guy? Where are they? Why is this <laughs> happening? It's pretty, though. Um, and with that being said, I found the character of Flash Gordon, like, a lot of fun. I don't know if that's how he is normally. Because I have no, you know, previous context for that character. But I, I think I'm going to check out the second issue at the very least. Um, right now, they are in, I believe, Sky City trying to deal with some cray-cray hawk people. Prince Baron, come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're, they've got wings. <laughs> They're crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was the first thing that I read this week. Not really the first thing. It was actually one of the last things. But it's on my list. Anyways. Second thing for my uh, lightning round is Afterlife with Archie number seven. Really, really hard to follow up that Sabrina issue, which was hands down one of my favorite things ever. It may or may not make um, appearances on our best of lists. Yeah. <laughs> Time travel. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it was, it, I mean, that first arc was so strong. Uh, and this one, I felt like seven kicked it off even stronger. I loved the perspective from Betty. Uh, the art was fantastic. I mean, you've got Francesco Francavilla, so you can't, you can't <laughs> go wrong. Uh, I loved the insight into how Betty thinks. A lot of it is written from her perspective in her diary and diaries over the years. So you're not just seeing her thoughts on what's going on now, but thoughts from you know, her childhood and all that too, and her friendship with Veronica and what really drives that, why she sticks around with her. And, um, you know, obviously there's some feels for Archie in there. Because who would Betty be if there was no Archie? Uh, which well, sounds really we'll horrible. Please out. don't burn me at the stake, people. Yeah, maybe we'll find <laughs> out in this issue. Um, yeah. And there, there's 
a cliffhanger at the end of it, and it was intense. Uh, it felt a bit like The Walking Dead in the sense that, um, I mean, I think with any kind of disease that you don't understand, the instinct when you're wandering around with a mob of scared people is, oh my God, let's go to the CDC. Like yes. walking to that building is going to fix everything. Yeah, that's true. So um, um, uh, it has a bit of like the Walking Dead feel to it right now when the Walking Dead was still there. Uh, but yeah, I really enjoyed this issue. I'm interested to see where it goes and who survives, I guess, more importantly. I think the bulk of the people who have, you know, been offed have been offed. Uh, and there's there's some... Did you guys read this as well? I, I, did, I, I did. did not. I did. Um, I have it at home. I haven't gotten okay. to it yet. I have a question for the group. Yes. If I may. Yes. Uh, how do we all feel about the announcement of a Mark Wade and Fiona Staples Archie book? Yeah, I was going to bring that up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sorry. To say that. No, no, it's yeah. all right. Well, before I, we get to that, yeah, I loved um, uh, Bobby. You did read this, so yes, like, I did. One of my favorite parts from this uh, issue was uh, the revelation that they find out that they're all having the same sort of dreams. Yes, which is yes. a flashback to the Sabrina issue. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. I thought that was really, really interesting. Yeah. Um, so I, I read about seven books this week, and combined between our books of the week and lightning round stuff all of them are in in flow already so i'm going to kind of use my three minutes to continue this talk about afterlife with archie uh because i do really want to talk about it um and continue our conversation so i'm gonna start the timer on myself right now but stephanie you and i will continue talking about it um i do agree with you i mean i think the first arc is incredibly strong and this you know obviously this kickstart and this kind of wake up to these great characters who had kind of been in the same sort of rut for a long mm-hmm. time. I, I don't want to say rut because I didn't read it, so I don't know the creative juices behind it. But you know, this, they were they were characterized the same way for a very long time, and this was kind of a shot in the arm for them. And the first arc very much deals with the exact moment of apocalypse, right? So it's mostly people acting on instinct. And now we get into more of kind of I know that you brought Walking Dead in a kind of pejorative sense, but it it's it hits more of the Walking Dead comic area in the fact that it's now dealing with what do you do when now there is time you mm-hmm. know where you don't have a lot of time but you're gonna have downtime now and you, and now there are group dynamics that are going to begin to form as you travel and the stuff the old rivalries and stuff you might have forgotten about and left behind while you were going through the exact moment of you know things trying to bite you and kill you now they've receded a little bit into the background so now those things crop back up mm-hmm. and um i think like you said 70 coming with from betty's perspective i think was great and it starts dealing with, you know, like some pretty deep issues with uh, abuse and with, you know, infidelity and and animal and murder, animal murder. <laughs> yeah. And there's some really nasty stuff with a pair of siblings in it that it, it, it seems like there's even nastier stuff under the surface than, than even they've even shown so far. Creepy siblings. To they were with. very creepy siblings. Um, and, you know, it continues to subvert expectations even even with we've already seen it for a year and we know what it is it continues to, i think take things to a different level with these characters and really dig into them um and i think that it's amazing you know there's very much a big chance for a letdown right after a great first arc sure. an amazing single issue that is kind of outside that arc that we all agree is fantastic and then coming back here it, it, i don't think it misses a it misses a beat at all and it opens up new mysteries and that I don't think were there before. And these are now human mysteries, not just 
not just the, the big a mystery, the big kind of supernatural mysteries, which I really, really like about it. And Josie and the Pussycats make the briefest of cameos. <gasps> yes, there's a little, a little Josie. That was cool. I was like, oh, look at that. Um, they could be alive somewhere. <laughs> I was like, yay! Uh, <laughs> but yeah, and I liked how they it was, and they talk about it a little bit in the, in the background as well in the in the letters at the end. How you know that you feel the link between that Sabrina issue and this issue, which mm-hmm. is nice, and you can definitely tell that at some point, somewhere, she's coming back in some in some form or another, which I really liked that as well. I think that they've done a fantastic job, and I think that they might even get more bold with their choices. Uh, considering what see what you just brought up, which was this, mm-hmm. Archie is kind of relaunching their their series now. They they yeah. they are what they calling like the new fifty two for Archie, <laughs> but the press has kind of dubbed it. Um, and uh, the, the the headline book is obviously they're re- they're rebooting, they're restarting Betty, Betty and Veronica, um, Jughead, uh, the Kevin Keller book as well, oh, and wow. and this Life with Archie book, which. Um, is obviously going to be written by Mark Wade and for the th- first three issues mm-hmm. uh, drawn by Fiona Staples, uh, which is if if you're if you're trying That's to crazy. ask for a better team to come on to start a comic, I don't think you could really do that because even though Fiona's only drawing the first three issues, she's redesigning the characters, and yeah. so I whatever happens after her, those characters are now going to be in her kind of model. I don't which know if I think you guys. Saw this Sorry. like a, a couple years ago, but she did a variant cover for Archie. She did them as the Little Mermaid, and oh, Jughead no. was Flounder. Oh no, I didn't so see Betty that. And no. Veronica were uh, mermaids, mm. and I think like Archie might have been on a ship, like uh, you know, he might have been the prince kind of thing, and Jughead was Flounder with like a little crown on him. <laughs> That's really funny. It was That's amazing. Awesome. Somewhere um, in my collection. I mean, I've, I have the Josie and the Pussycats one that she did uh, a few years ago on my so wall, good. which Me is amazing. Too. It's my favorite thing I have on my wall. Yeah, it's amazing. And looking at those things, it, it's crazy to think that, that that Archie has that creative team. Um, and Bob, I mean, you were saying it was crazy. So what do, yeah, what do you think well, of it? Here's the idea. We had these books for so many years mm. that maybe should, none of us are reading it. Mm. The perception is it's just this junk. That's what you start with. Mm-hmm. But there are people who did follow them all through these years, and you, they're being validated. Mm-hmm. Wow, mm-hmm. these are really strong characters. They told really great stories for a very long time. That's How many people join our forums or we speak to online or mm-hmm. whatever, send us emails, whose introduction to comic books entirely were the, was the Archie universe? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now they get to continue reading them. And these characters mean something and continue to, and I... It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. My my mom saw, um, I posted a photo of the variant cover for number seven mm-hmm. on my Instagram and it automatically goes to my Facebook page. And so my mom commented, she's like, oh, I love this. I used to read Archie all the time. And so immediately I went to Amazon and I grabbed her the first trade of mm-hmm. Afterlife with Archie. Yeah. I want to see what she thinks of it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and the great thing about it is, right, I think, like I said, they're, they're going to get more, they can get more bold with this because they're... the original characters are coming back in a very, very strong yep. way. And I like what they said about you know, um, redrawing the characters simply because they want to be able to place them as tell the same sort of teen centric stories that they told back then, but now in a more in in a modern teen mm-hmm. sense. So they're going to be more relatable to the same people who would have picked them up back then to start. Now can pick them up again to start and have that same connection. I'm, and if you're going to sorry, Stephanie, go no, ahead. Tim. Uh, I'm also really hoping for an update in a little bit of the character dynamic too. I mean, yeah, it's real cutesy, like. 30 years ago to have Betty and Veronica fighting over the same dude. Mm-hmm. Like, Archie, he's great. But, like, that's old now. Mm-hmm. Just choose one of them or <laughs> take Archie out of the picture entirely. 
Dem girls are too good for him. <laughs> I, I just want to see some things change up there. I'm not saying it like, you know, I just, I want to see new things, new stories. Uh, and I hope they continue the tradition of like the Sabrina and Josie and the Pussycats backups and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I hope so as well. And I think that, if, look, if you're looking for anybody who can take older characters remake them in a new mold but stay true to who they are it mark wade is the perfect person yeah, he's the to, to, guy. to do that so i think that it's perfect for that i think that look i mean what they're doing over at archie is ex- is extremely smart i mean they've had a, a great year or so you know remaking their image and now they're taking it, i think to another another level and i agree with you Stephanie. i think it is the perfect time to remake those relationships in, in ways you know you can keep some of it there but you need to be able to progress it a little bit and, and, it- and i and i think that um you know it's interesting because i always when i would read those books i always thought that they were way more interesting than archie ever was mm-hmm. you know because <laughs> archie always just seemed like the the this like I don't know, this boy that they were always chasing, but I never got any personality out of him, you know, when I would read those books. So I would very much like to see them, you know, deal with those characters in in a more, you know, upfront way. Yeah, maybe they get like super progressive and then, you know, Betty and Veronica realize that they've been fighting over Archie this whole time because he's just been in in the way of their love for one another. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Um, getting, and, getting deep with Archie. Yeah, absolutely. You're welcome, everyone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then, of course, I mean, they're doing that show, too, Riverdale. Yeah. Which is supposed to be, it, it, I mean, they pitch it as like, it's not going to be just like a straight teen drama. There's going to be like sci-fi and fantasy elements incorporated into it, just like there is That's in the so arts cool. universe. Yeah. It's really cool. So it's really like cool. Degrassi meets Vampire Diaries. Yeah, or something like that. Yeah. It, it should yeah, be interesting thing to see. Or Buffy, yeah. Um, that would be amazing. It's really cool to see to see this universe coming back like this and be vibrant in a way that it hasn't been in, in a very very long time. So yeah, Afterlife with Archie number seven just shows you more what what, what they're doing over it's there. Cool that so many people are into it too. Like it's yeah. not like it just came back and it's mm-hmm. just there and it, it's you know it's existing in some corner of the comic book universe. People are really into it. Yeah, absolutely. I think to the people that Archie had an impact on growing up, Archie was a big deal. Like for me again. Mm-hmm. Archie was my gateway. Like, I didn't have the access to regular comics. Like, I'm one of those people that... Was it you, Bob, that just brought that up, like, with the forums? Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. And, you know, I I don't... haven't really read Archie outside of the stuff that we've obviously been championing... 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 <laughs> um, on the show for the last little while. But these characters are beloved to me. Um you bet your ass I saw the Josie and the Pussycats movie like 5,000 times. <laughs> you bet your ass I know that soundtrack by heart. You bet your ass I own it. Like, you know, I I love the Sabrina show with Melissa Joan Hart. Is it absolutely terrible? Yes. Do I still love it? Yes. And why is that? Because those characters were beloved to me. Mm-hmm. And now that they're rebooting it, I'm super stoked about that. I love these characters. They're outdated and ridiculous but with an update there's no reason that these comics couldn't be as good as anything else on the shelves absolutely absolutely especially with i mean it starts with the creative team right Mm -hmm. and and they picked out a a fantastic one so that just tells you the level of um dedication that they're willing to you know put into a relaunch of these books you Mm -hmm. know if they're putting joe schmo and Mm -hmm. uh whoever else on the book it's just like eh, we don't care but they're getting, you know, A-listers to get on board with these books and to get people excited. And 
these books are going to do fantastic for sales. Uh, who knows if after the first three issues, once Fiona leaves, the sales will keep up. But I bet you if the first issue is good, at least those three issues will do gangbusters. Yeah. And uh, I mean, Fiona Sables came out and said, right, that to all any of the Saga fans who were worried that it's not going to affect at all the, the scheduling mm-hmm. uh, for, for, for putting Saga out. So <laughs> That was the first reaction I saw to the news. Yes. But what about Saga? <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right, so let's move on to our, our, our books of the week. Um, I'm actually going to switch up. I actually have Steve go first. Oh, man. Playing games. Oh, all right. I got two, I got, I got two pretty heavy books this week, so uh, get, get close. Join me. Bobby's already given me a face. I, can't, I don't know if I can get close. I can't get any closer. That, that was my face. <laughs> I can't get any closer. I'm closer. All right. <laughs> so <laughs> I've, got, I've got this book with me uh, here tonight. From, uh, it's from John and Quarterly. And it's called Beautiful Darkness by Fabian uh, Velhem and ooh, Bob Kara Scott. Kara Scott. Okay. So here's the thing. Uh, for this particular section, I am going to read you a little blurb from the back of the book to tell you what they say this book is supposed to be. And then I'm actually going to tell you what it is. Uh, okay, so it says, Unsettling and gorgeous anti-fairy tale is a searing condemnation of our vast capacity for evil uh, writ tiny. Join Princess Aurora and her friends as they journey to civilization's heart of darkness in a bleak allegory about surviving the human experience. The sweet faces and bright leaves of uh, Kara Scott's delicate watercolors serve to highlight the evil that dwells beneath Velman's story as pettiness, greed, and jealousy take over. Beautiful Darkness is a harrowing look behind the routine politeness and meaninglessness kindness uh, of civilized society. Meaningless kindness of civilized society. Okay, so that's the back of the book. I bought this off of Amazon when I was Christmas shopping because I thought the cover looked cool and I wanted something outside of what we've spoken about just in case we wanted something for end of the year stuff. Mm. Okay, so the beginning of this book starts. It's all beautiful, beautiful watercolors in the middle of a forest and you kind of pan out and you come to find the dead body of a young girl lying in the forest. And as she's lying there, as it's raining, all of these people start pouring out of her. So like they start crawling out of her nose and coming out of her mouth. And essentially what they are, what I perceive them to be, are all of the different emotions and all of the different niceties that people say and people do like the personification of like being nice to somebody that you don't necessarily like them but you know you just you deal with it for the moment and you put on a smile and you're like oh you know how you been and and you're totally faking it the whole time you could care less you got better things to do all of those things as she's dying are pouring out of her and essentially are little people looking around at this new forest landscape asking themselves how are we going to survive? How are we going to eat? This is all new to us, and we have no idea what's going on. So they start to try to adapt. They start to try to build houses. They start to try and uh, make friends with the wildlife and stuff like that. But what you have to remember is that not all of them, not all of the things that we feel and not all the things we do are nice things. So you have you know, the niceties pouring out, and then you have the venomous and the evil things and the manipulative things that people do also pouring out and kind of 
pulling the strings of how this society is building itself. And you get this really, really, like, just horrible... It's the most messed up thing that I've read this entire year. <laughs> like, I'm just going to put that right out there. Um, it's getting into things of the human condition that sometimes maybe you you pour over them when you're alone or you don't share your thoughts about certain things with other people. Representations of those feelings and those thoughts are in this book and they're crawling around and they're trying to make a new life. And they're clipping the wings of the birds so that that land on the ground so that they can ride them and they can have transportation. They're, you know, using the hollowed out skull of the body that's decaying in the woods as a home and other ones are jealous of other ones' homes, so they're going in and they're killing them and they're taking that spot. It's really crazy. So if you want to read something super intense uh, and just very, very, very in-depth and interesting and kind of makes you question who we are, all in the guise of this beautifully, beautifully uh, illustrated and watercolored uh, graphic novel from Drawn and Quarterly, it's called Beautiful Darkness. <laughs> And it, it was beautiful, mm. but it was really dark. Mm. It was super, super dark. Hence the title. Yes. Oh, God, it was awesome. Like, I wasn't sure how I felt about it when I when I started it. I'm like, this is really weird. What is going on? For about, like, like halfway through the book, I had no idea what I was reading, and then it kind of all started to click together, and it was really something else. Um, the other book that I have is um, another graphic novel uh, from Magnetic Press, and it's called Lumine, and it's by an artist uh, named Ben Gall, who is the artist that worked on the book Naja um, that Stephanie uh, had brought to the podcast a while ago. And this is him writing and drawing this time. So this is the whole deal is him. And Lumine is basically, if you want to think of it as a graphic novel that features the final act of like a gigantic battle that's been going on for quite some time. It turns out that some guy who owns a, he owns like a, he's not royalty, but he's like the king of this township or whatever. And there's a neighboring town that they're different than them and they, they look like dogs and they don't like it because they don't want to mix the people and we just want to get rid of them. So he basically summons this, <clears throat> excuse me, this beast to come in and clear out that neighboring town so that he can just have a, a you know a pure human town and not have them intermingling anyway the demon gets summoned and constantly on the heels of this demon always is this uh band of female warriors and they all their job is to protect this one warrior that they have with them called the lumine she's this kind of um like beacon of light that if the light goes out all of darkness descends and all of this stuff. And it's just, it's like one giant battle sequence. There are whole sections of the book that are just action scenes and it is absolutely positively gorgeous. If you've ever seen any of the artwork from Naja, it's got kind of an anime uh, vibe to it, but the colors in it are ridiculous. Uh, it might take you a little bit, like it took me to kind of learn the names of the characters because there are many, but once you get a handle on who everybody is and what their powers are, this is just an epic, epic, epic book um, for anybody that likes high high octane like magic and fight anime. This is right up your alley. Um, I immediately thought of Mara Wood mm. when I was reading this, and the ladies that are in this. There's about five or seven of them. 
you know, this is seems to have been the year for badass ladies and lady teams coming up between Rat Queens and, you know, uh, was it Fearless Defenders mm. last year? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, like towards the end of last year. Um, this is just another example of a creator having a passion to create one of those teams and bringing you in on the ground floor of this final act of this really, really heinous conjuring from this lord and the cleanup crew coming to take care of it before everybody dies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the thing that they're facing is absolutely horrifying and nightmarish and and quite frankly scared the living crap out of me mm. when I was reading it. <laughs> so um, that is Lumine from Magnetic Press and the artist and writer is Ben Gall. Uh, how is he as a writer? I, You know, like I said... It was a little confusing. It was the names are not easy to pronounce, and there's at least seven of them, and they're kind of they're talking about each other before you even see them. Like Luminae's missing at the start of the story, so they're talking about her a lot, and we've seen a ton of characters and don't have their names yet. So you're kind of left guessing. You know, well, is the girl that's all bandaged up lying in the bed? Is that her? Or is that the other one that they went missing? And why is the one that died, this it looks like the character is still there. There's two characters that look very similar. So when you're getting these action sequences that are kind of, you know, blurred weapon throwing and, and or maybe somebody gets striked down and their body goes crooked, that the hair is kind of all you see through the blood and through the magic, it gets a little confusing as to who fell. But then in the following panels, you figure it out and whatever. Mm. Um, it's one of those books where they kind of just want you to go. He wants you to go for the ride for like at least 80% of it. It's just going to be throw down after throw down. The battle sequences are huge and they're beautiful. Uh, and then at the end, they kind of summarize everything that's happened in the book and explain to you who was responsible for what. Um, and it's about death and it's about replacement. And who, if the light goes out, who is the next Luminae? Because there always has to be one or the darkness will descend. Mm -hmm. Can we keep her safe and can you cope with being this thing? Mm -hmm. Um, It was really, really, really good. Um, I'm super glad that I bought it. I picked it up completely on a whim. Um, But if if everything was not summed up at the end, I don't think it would have been nearly as satisfying. Mm -hmm. It's one of those things that after you read it, after you finish it, you're like... Oh, all right. And then you put it back and you're milling around. And for the next like 20 minutes, you're kind of recapping everything that went on. And you put the pieces all together and you're like, you know what? The next time that I sit down and I read that again, it's going to totally make sense. And it's going to be even better. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. All right, cool. Really good. Awesome. Uh, Bob. Ah, well, speaking of lady warrior type things, <laughs> Thor number three, Jason Aaron, mm-hmm. Russell Dowderman and Matthew Wilson on colors. This begins with a flashback as we see uh, Skymere of the Frost Giants and Malekith of the Dark Elves. You see how they've formed their little conglomerate here because they're trying to reclaim the bones of Laufey, the Frost Giant King, who rocks on oil for some reason has. And why not? They're crooks. <laughs> they're creeps. They've been around for Marvel for 40-odd years. And, and usually their major problem would be Thor, but uh, Malekith kind of realizes something's different down on Earth. And so now we flash back into our present with the new Thor trapped on one side of an impenetrable door with frost giants on one side and her hammer on the other. Mm -hmm. Nice little toss back to the old Don Blake idea when he lost his hammer for more than 60 seconds, he reverted to powerless Don Blake. Which, you know, it was a little 
stupid mm-hmm. in, in a way, in the same way that Aquaman, if he was out of the water 60 minutes, would die. <laughs> Didn't matter what the humidity was or whether he was in the, you know, the Gobi Desert. 60 minutes, that was it. You know, he, So there would always be these covers of him hanging off a dock with a clock <laughs> running. Like, who cares? It's just crazy. But it's played very well here because there are lots of mysteries, but we're getting clues about who Thor is, or rather who Thor, the new Thor isn't. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it almost happens here. Mm-hmm. It's, it's close. I it's like that close. they're dangling it. I wasn't yeah. down with that at the beginning, but now I'm really into it. I honestly, I'd like it to keep going. Mm-hmm. Don't reveal it. You know, I was initially a little crabby about that. Yeah. The way it's playing out here, if they went 12 issues and we found out, you know, at the end of what would be the second arc, as long as the stories are this good well, it's, right here. It's interesting because the, the character has been presented to us in one way as having, you know, the long flowing blonde hair. Yeah. But we come to find out that a lot of what's going on here is magic. What happens if that's an illusion too? Yeah. Ooh. We have no real clue except it isn't the Odin son. No. Mm-hmm. That we can say for sure. A lot of fun here. There's humor, there's heart, there's courage and action sequences, and a heck of a killer last page. Yeah, yeah. That's going to set up a really nice issue. I didn't know Russell Dowderman's art until here, but but paired with Matthew Wilson's colors, this is just an amazing book to look at. Yeah, you can just flip through it and just oh look, there's a Charles Atlas there. <laughs> I'm so glad that you're like you're now reading Jason Aaron's Thor because yeah. oh. it's been so good for so long and and now that people are jumping onto it with this new character and new story, I'm just so pumped for so many people to go back. Yeah, I have the funny feeling Mr. Dowderman's going to be on some list next year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a beautiful book to look at, right? Uh, yeah, it was fun. I like how they're teasing you, how they're, how, you know, she fights like a Valkyrie, you know, yeah. no, she's a witch, you know, so they're they're throwing out it's, it's, it's as Jason Aaron is like looking at the theories about who the character yeah. is going to be and writing, you know, kind of red herrings into the script, which I enjoyed a lot in there. Oh, that one panelist. It, it, pretty soon I'll turn back into and then something else happens and she can't finish the sentence. Yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, we're yeah. going to go there. It's But just a heck of a lot of fun. And I, again, I picked this up just on a whim. Mm-hmm. Figuring, oh, I want to see what this is about. And I'm more than any of these, the new launches, Cap or even mm-hmm. Mighty Avengers, which I do love. Mm-hmm. This has been a revelation. So, awesome. Yeah. So, Thor number yeah. three. Mm. Yay. Okay. I will say one theory. Sure. I, I, she's got to be someone that has power outside of being Thor. Because even when she says she's losing her power, she's still like throwing frost, frost giants, giants around. around. Yeah. Hmm. So she has to be at least somewhat powered, I think, in her regular life. So I don't think it can be some a civilian, a pure civilian. Annabelle from Fearless? Ah, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, I'm thinking. theory theory here. Mm. So she could be half Valkyrie. <laughs> We're, if we see her with glasses, we'll know. Mm. Steph, are you all caught up on Thor? No, I've only read uh, one and two. I went to pick up three when I was at the shop last week, and I picked up basically everything else, and then... <laughs> I got home and Rap's like, did you get Thor? And I was like, God! I hate it when that happens. <laughs> yeah. Done so. that myself. You'll yeah. love this one. Mm. I still need to get Birthright number three. I think that's coming in today. Oh, yeah. 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 It was late, but I think we're getting it today. Don't tell Joshua later that you haven't read it yet. No, <laughs> I won't. Oh, yeah. This is time traveling <laughs> stuff again. I definitely yeah. won't tell him. Yeah. I have a good feeling <laughs> yeah, that I won't yeah, tell yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tommy Wimey? Yeah, Tommy Wimey. <laughs> Here we come. What's next for us, Bob? Well, for me, my book of the week is the Harley Quinn Holiday Special. <laughs> it, I mean, it is Christmas. It all it's just this gorgeous Amanda Connor cover of 
of Harley with her gifts was a giant mallet wrapped up and her usual pets running around. And who would think that this sort of Harley Quinn holiday special would have such a huge bundle of real holiday spirit and genuine emotion in it? Does it really? I'm not kidding. That's awesome. I mean, you get the usual shenanigans. She's Harley and stuff happens, but... Is she fighting a giant slice of pizza in this one? Oh, no. The first story is the main story here, uh, and it's Amanda Connor, Jimmy Palmiotti, and an artist named Morissette. And whoever Morissette is, she or he should be doing the art on this book immediately and every issue because this is the the style of art it should have. Mm -hmm. It is playful and yet serious and charmingly cartoony. I like it. What we have here, the story opens with Harley and her neighbor, Tony, trying to eliminate some of the overabundance of puppies because (laughs) Harley hasn't had them all fixed quite properly. Oh, my God. So they come up with the idea of of dressing as Santa's helpers and going to the mall. And when they find someone coming out of the mall who has the right attitude that they'd be a good home for a puppy, they stuff them in their bags and run away. (laughs) Now, one one little fella, a little pug named Abu, uh, Harley falls in love with. And she, she hands him off and she's tearing up and crying. And... Harley wants to say goodbye properly to the little pup. So she breaks into the police station, roughs some cops up, gets the address, and goes to this house. Breaks into the house, says goodbye to her dog, starts drinking the spiked eggnog, and passes out drunk on the floor. (laughs) The mom and dad and little Cindy, who looks very much like Cindy Lou Who, come down the stairs, and Cindy is just so enamored of seeing Harley spread out on the floor. I've always wanted one of those. It's mine forever the way kids are with toys. It turns out that she's a very troubled little girl. For a lot of ways, there's been some losses in her life that I won't spoil here because they're kind of kind of wacky and kind of goofy. And the father's trying to come up with some way to get himself ingratiated with his daughter again. And Harley goes back to being Harley and Quinzel and fixes things for this little girl. And it gets kind of Harley goofy and all. And yet it's all about changing someone's life. And it even ends in, a, in this sort of, it's a wonderful life kind of way, but there's a whole gathering or whatever. This is just a charming, charming book, and it's Harley Quinn, no <laughs> less. And if people, look, a lot of people are picking these things up because it's, yeah, it's selling so- 90,000 copies. I don't know about these specials going. <laughs> Definitely get this. There's also a Darwin Cook story told in a very Bruce Tim kind of way. <laughs> And we have a painted story about sort of uh, where Santa goes. Santa apparently goes out for meals and things on Hanukkah because you can get into restaurants. <laughs> so the second story told in a sort of, I guess this is a Lenore kind of looking. Uh, a little bit, yeah. Little bit, yeah. So Harley is Lenore in Get Your Cheer Out of My Ear by Brant Peters. Yeah, it's definitely got like a, a chibi yeah. look to it. But I, again, I when we had Amanda and Jimmy on, it was clear this is going to be a crazy series. And, you know, the... the the scatapult and everything else. But here it's, you know, as we saw in Before Watchmen, and so expect her, Amanda Connor has become a really, really good writer. And that's here. And it's another layer to this I didn't think could have even existed, and yet it's here. So the Harley Quinn holiday special worth every penny of its four ninety nine cover price. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Stephanie, what do you got for us? Hello. <laughs> um, so I guess I should start by saying that uh one of my comics isn't necessarily book of the week, uh, but I do want to talk about it a little bit. 
Uh, I'm not sure if I should start with that or my actual book of the week. Start with start with the the um the first book the 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 valiant. I'll start with the valiant. All right. So, uh, I didn't want to add this into my lightning round because um, it's pretty obvious by now that you guys really, 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 really like valiant, uh, and I am totally cool with that. I've tried reading valiant several times now, um, and. I really want to love Valiant. I do. I'm on your side, guys. Um, but I picked up the Valiant, and it was hands down one of the most confusing issues I've ever read in my life. Um, was that harsh? I feel like that might have been harsh. I have no idea what's happening. Um, <laughs> then that's an accurate description of what you read, I guess, yeah. I was like, I read it twice. And it was like, I had to go back and just keep flipping through the pages because these characters, I'm not familiar with them at all. So they're like making references about their powers. They're not really telling you who they are. And the way that the book progresses just feels completely unnatural to storytelling, which shocks me because it's Matt Kent and Jeff Lemire. Wow. Um, I, I don't know what to do about this book, guys. I want to love it. I just well, don't one, understand. Like literally, I have no four, idea. Right? Yeah, but um, um, I and, I read it as well. But finish, Stephanie. And then, Valiant. I don't know why you did this. Seriously, what is wrong with you? I get to the end of the book, and there at the back of the book, there's a comprehensive list of all the characters. <laughs> I'm like, why didn't you put this in the front of the book for people like me who have never read these before? Why wouldn't you put this at the front? Like every other publisher. <laughs> I realize maybe you want to be different and awesome, but why? Anyways, I'm sorry. I don't want to rag on Valiant. I do think they're a great company that are putting out books that are unlike anything else, which is why I keep trying to pick up new things. I, I read, uh, I know somebody corrected me on how to say this, but Ray, which I actually it's did rye. enjoy. Rye. Rye. <laughs> Yes. Like the bread. Um, like the bread. <laughs> and I, I do actually intend to go back and finish that trade at some point in the near future. I've tried Exo Manowar. Um, I think I've tried an issue of Harbinger. And it's just not for me, I don't think. And the Valiant, everyone was saying that this was a really great jumping on point. But for me, having not had any experience really with Valiant, or at least not enough to constitute having any knowledge of these characters, I was utterly and completely lost mm -hmm. so like i didn't want to just kind of shove this into the lightning round and not discuss it with you guys because i i think bobby at least has read this correct yeah and steve has as well yeah I read okay it. but um i'll pass this off to you guys now too um so you know i've read little of valiant i've read the first trade of exo man of war i've read a bloodshot here i've read um i think the first issue of eternal warrior when it came out i've kind of like done like a survey course of what they've done and um you know it, it just has always been because we read so much it's, it, it's it's tough for things to incur into them that are superhero stuff that's not the big two um but obviously i was very excited about this because it's matt kent and, and it's jeff lemire um and it's uh it's paulo rivera and i'll say right off the bat that the book visually it's gorgeous. Um, it, the, the, the characters are rendered beautifully. Um, I think that the visual storytelling is done well, and there's a lot of complicated panels to and layouts to work with that I think are pulled off great. Um, and some very disturbing imagery as well that I think is done really well. 
uh, there's a, a part of the story that I enjoy, right? Which is this kind of the basically the spine of the story is the Eternal Warrior is a character. He's like the good version of Vandal Savage. You know, he's existed okay. forever and he's been constantly fighting evil over and over and over again and he constantly loses but he constantly beats the back just enough so that it has to come back again another time but he can never fully finish it off and they do an interesting thing here where they kind of posit that this like this ancient evil is Grendel at, at one point in, in, in history and stuff like that in the Beowulf mythos so that stuff is cool and I like the idea of this evil that keeps recurring and recurring and this is like a big this is going to be like this is like the last battle against this evil and you have this sort of team is putting together um, that is going to fight them now, what I, where I think the book, I think the book does a decent job of setting up that character. Uh, I think that it does a poor, poor job of setting up the other main players in the Valiant. I think that um, uh, Bloodshot isn't set up great in this. Um, I know a little bit about him because I think it was Jeff Lemire. Actually, it was Jeff Lemire, or Matt Kent. It was Matt Kent who wrote a zero issue of Bloodshot that was very interesting that I liked a lot actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and then. Um, I think Exo Man of War, if you don't know who he is, is set up poorly here as well. Um, he's also a very interesting character in, in the way that he is, you know, he isn't kind of an ancient man, like a Visigoth that gets taken away to another planet. And when he, and he comes back, he decides to lead a revolution with his remaining people to try to take over the world. Um, and he has been sort of like a bad guy in a lot of the books, but it's apparently switched over to kind of being a good guy here. Um, I think they do a poor job of, of introducing that character as well. Um, uh, along with the um, the the main female protagonist as well, I think they do a poor job. Uh, Geomancer, a poor job of of really showing who she is, even though they set up kind of this her lineage in, in some of the other stories. So I think that where I feel like it was it it had the opportunity to be the book that got a bunch of people interested in this universe that had never read it before because uh, of the creative team, because it's number one, because it seems prestigious and it's in a kind of a a different almost a prestige format so i felt like that was a really good opportunity for them and i felt like in that way they missed the mark um people who like valiant seem to love it so that's good obviously because you're serving the audience you have um i'm definitely interested because of that eternal warrior through line to go into it but it didn't i was i was ready to love it i was like primed to love it i was like yes this is the book i'm gonna love it i'm gonna be in and then i read it and i was like it was good but i just i didn't i didn't go crazy for it so i'm, I'm gonna get another issue of it and, and see because i do like the creative team i think it looks really good hopefully it it will if i sit i'm i am making a vow to those who <laughs> who love valiant that listen to our show that i'm going to i'm going to read every issue of this mini series and if afterwards any of these characters hooks me i will go in and read more so i will at least give it to the end of this mini series but steve what, what did you think of it new year's resolutions yes being made <laughs> yes um, part of, part of, part of what happened with the Valiant for me I, is wholly my fault. Uh, we talked about it coming out when it was announced and I don't know why, but I, I heard it as being a different book. I just remember it not being what it is. Why are you smiling at me like that? <laughs> Your story is funny. That's all. <laughs> okay. So I hear, I, you know, I hear Jeff Lemire. I hear Matt Kent. Love both of them. Um, and I agree. The artwork for the book, um, I think, is is very cool, and um, almost has kind of that like dark horsey, um, like Hellboyish uh, coloring to it and whatnot. And that's about where it ended for me because I picked it up thinking that it was going to be something fresh and something new, like new in a sense of like a new character called the Valiant. 
I did not know that it was a group book. I didn't know it was going to be like the Avengers of the Valiant verse. So when it came into the shop and all I saw was it in name on the list, I was like, oh, wow, that comes out today. Cool. You know, same thing. I can finally dive into Valiant. People have been telling us for a long time now, you know, you got to get into it. And I have read um, The Harbinger. I read it for about seven issues. I really enjoyed it up until a point that a certain character got introduced and then I just kind of fell away from it. Um, There's a Faith book from the Harbinger series that's coming out. Uh, I believe it's a number zero. It might even be a number one. I will definitely check that out because I really dug her character a lot. Um, But in the case of the Valiant, I felt really lost and I felt like the writing didn't invite me as being a new writer. I mean, it's a four-part miniseries. Maybe it's for fans of, you know, these properties and these these books to see them all come together on, you know, an adventure and stuff like that. I thought the Archer from Archer and Armstrong stuff um, was kind of funny in the interaction between him and, and the, the Geo, was it Geomancer? Mm-hmm. Um, I thought some of that stuff was funny. And I my friend Brendan lent me his Archer and Armstrong forever ago, and it's still sitting in my bedroom unread. Um, but he's a, he's a big fan of Valiant and he was kind of, uh, touting them for a while. So it was kind of cool to see him and kind of get a feel for what his, uh, deal is. And now I can completely see why he's into him, um, in a, in a good way, not in a bad way, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It, It might be a trade weight for me instead of picking it up individually. There's so many things coming out. Um, I will read it when it's all collected though with the hope that perhaps once it's done, that it's had time to flesh itself out, that it'll read better. Um, and that I'll be able to stay in that universe for a bit and have time with the characters to maybe get comfortable with them and follow them into other places. Um, and one of the things about Valiant, there's some of their, some of their character designs, like they just don't, they don't do anything for me visually. Like bloodshot doesn't excite me as a character when I look at him at all. Like, I, I see him in the book, and I'm like, eh. Well, you don't need to start bashing him now. No, 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 no. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, no, but you're asking, you know, yeah, you asked me yeah, what I thought. This yeah. is what I think. I just, I I have, I, I, I want to see it all done. I, I hope that when it's done, that this is something that can bring me into uh, the Valiant universe. And that's pretty much it. I probably said I too think, much. Right, cool. I think uh, at this point in time, I, I feel a bit like a number one snob. Um <laughs> There's certain books that really spoil us with giving you exactly what you want when you read a first issue. Um, and the last few years with reboots and relaunches uh, have kind of blurred that line, I think, between a proper number one and, like, an air quotes number one. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of companies forget that, like you said, Bobby, like, it was good for the people it was good for like the people that are already huge Valiant fans, but and that's a good number one for them, but for everyone else, that's not a number one. A number one takes a step back and explains what's going on and is inclusive to people who want to hop on board. And, you know, like number ones aren't supposed to have years and years of things to slog through. Uh, And you shouldn't have to go to Wikipedia to understand a book if it's a number one you know i agree with you i agree with you but to be fair to this series it's a mini series contained within a universe so it's uh, uh, you know we're not we when we see something like age of ultron number one or you know avengers vs x-men number one 
you're not having the same expectations of complete inclusiveness as you would for, let's say, this beginning of a new series, mm-hmm. you know? But now I would say, though, the opposite in one case here. With high-profile creators, I think Valiant assumed that this could be a book that they could definitely now recapture some people who drifted away from books they weren't understanding or capture an entirely new audience following those creators. And if then those people show up and can't make head or tails of it or are lost or not engaged, someone's not done enough. Right. Maybe it was simply just as Steph is saying, putting that roster at the front mm-hmm. or a page or two of introduction. Yeah. So as simple as that might have mm-hmm. changed everyone's perception of the book. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Stephanie, let's talk about the positive. Oh, yeah. I have more <laughs> things. Mm-hmm. I forgot. Um, obviously, it was that memorable. Kidding, it really was. Um, <laughs> so it should probably come as no shock to anybody that Kelly Sue DeConnick knocks it out of the goddamn park. Um, <laughs> bitch Planet number one was a two of the force. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, she just... She just has a way of making a comic completely and utterly memorable in the best possible ways. Uh, Bitch Planet number one is more or less about, um, well, you don't really have a lot of the about, aside from the fact that there is uh, a prison on a planet. It is nicknamed Bitch Planet. Mm. Uh, These people, some of them are there for valid reasons. Some of them are there because of corruption in um, the system. <laughs> and, you know, the bitches on Bitch Planet don't want to deal with the shit that they're getting put through anymore. Uh, some stuff is getting, you know, tensions are building. And I'm pretty sure soon we're going to see some stuff go down. Uh, we're meeting a few of the main characters, seeing how they're treated uh how they got there and i suspect over the next little while we'll also see how other people got there like a bit like um orange is the new black uh where you kind of do flashbacks why these people are here and then flashback to the forward or to the present i guess um and you'll see you know what they're doing to no longer be there which is going to be take over the world, <laughs> I think. So it was awesome. I thought the art was great. It had this, that very sort of grindhousey exploitation feel, which is exactly what they were going for. Mm-hmm. Um, who did the colors on this book? Because more so than almost anyone else, I think that they deserve like a standing ovation. I loved it. What, was it Clayton Cowles? No, it's Chris no, Peters. Chris Peters. Oh. Clayton Cowles is the letterer. Oh, okay. I thought that the colors were just outstanding and really made the book pop. Um, the ads that you see in uh, the beginning of the book and the page at the back were amazing. Bob, I'm yes, just going to... It's, it's hysterical. I'm going to let you carry on from here as um, like Kelly Sue's number one fan. Okay. <laughs> well, what you have here is an excellent rope a tightrope walk across Niagara Falls because here is a book championing the exploitation movies of the 60s and 70s and early 80s, the women in prison movie, or the women in jungle prison movies, uh, the 
you know, black mama, white mama, or women in chains, or women in cages, and so on and so forth. And not just turning it on his head in a third wave feminism sort of way, says we're taking it back. No, she, Kelly Sue and, and, and Val Delandro do that here, and you get a deep political message to go with it that yet does not seem as if it's being passed down to us from on high. As if, here, you should think this way. No, here, I'm going to spread all this junk out on the table and highlight these things. Make up your own mind, but here's, here's this is a through line that I think this way. Some of these women go to Bitch Planet because they're non-compliant. And that non-compliance, we don't even know what they are yet. Mm-hmm. There, there's one amazing twist here uh, for one of the characters that then has a, a secondary twist where you see a husband uh, fighting with authorities over his wife that goes to some very unexpected places. And I was brought up very, very short by that. It's a great presentation as a as a piece of lovely gender bending politics. It is still an action book. It is still a an exploitation piece, but turned on its head. We have a great essay at the back by Daniel Henderson. Beyond these ads, this is a book that you know. Come next year when people are talking about what really great new book came out that in the last month of the year this managed itself. Sensational, sensational debut. Um. I, I want to talk about the essay for a second. I think that, you know, we always talk about um, how, uh, or I always talk about how I try to separate uh, the outside kind of forces from the the enjoyment of the book, right? I, I don't want to let things outside the book influence how I feel about it. Obviously, that's often impossible because I'm a person, but um, I, I found that reading that essay... Uh, because it's obviously a viewpoint and a state of mind I, I don't know that much about, that I don't have, did very much help and inform me rereading the book and getting um, more out of it. I, I do really, I, I, I thought the writing in the book w- w- was exceptional, and I think that the idea of using these, um, a, the, the kind of the patriarchy ab- abusing um, the, the females within it, very interesting. You know, not something you you, you see kind of from this th- th- this perspective very often and that whole kind of bait and switch that goes on at the end about what you're looking at and what you what you're realizing what's going on I thought it was really interesting it's an idea that it, uh, you know is has traditionally not been very popular to show in in, in mainstream fiction and I, I like that they they went there and, and that they're showing it and they're dealing with it um the the only thing I will I will disagree with, and not to disagree I don't think the, there's anything wrong with the art, but I, it did not I was not crazy about it it did not it wasn't special to me that that's the thing for me like it's good and it does its job and the, it's, it, the storytelling by Valentine and Delangelo is is very good um, it gets everything that I need to but I, there was just something about it that was I I don't I I, I don't want to I don't know how to do it without being super reductive it's like it's like stock image to me. You know, it, it's something that like, when I think of not like the, the main, the big huge image books, like the, the, the more kind of like run of the mill ones, that's the art I expect to kind of see in them. And, uh, and it just, it didn't, to me, I wanted something else from the art. I don't know what it was, but I, I just, there was something I wanted more from it. And maybe it's just, it's just my, my personal preference to, to the, the aesthetics that I like in my books. It's probably more than anything else. Um, so for me, that was the only part of me that wasn't um, wasn't top top notch for, for me. But I, I think that 
what's great about this and it's great about this and it's great about a bunch of the other books that we talk about coming out from image is that it's something that you're not going to find anywhere else and that's what makes it special right it's it's a story and a, a point of view that is specifically kelly sue's and it's an auteur type of work uh and that is something that is very special nowadays you know and i I, I think I, I felt it much the same way after reading that essay as I felt after reading the essay at the back of Witches with Scott Snyder, where it enhances what the book is telling me, you know? Uh, so, yeah, so I, I thought it was very good, um, ex- except the art being a little bit um, less for me. I thought the book was great. Steve, what did you think of it? Um, all right, well, I mean, so much has already been said, so I'm not going to I'm not gonna retread old ground, but um, no, I dug it. I really dug it. I... Um, I liked I liked the art in terms of like the contours of of the bodies and mm-hmm. stuff like that. I mean, you know, we've talked about that a lot, uh, particularly this year, about the very posy art and and just bodies not being drawn correctly or or to form or whatever. Mm-hmm. So it was nice to see just a a an ent- entire prison, quite frankly, mm-hmm. of you know, and because most of the book uh, takes place with. Um, people having no clothes you just you got to see you know real women in a situation in their naked forms and it just i thought that that aspect of it was nice and rather refreshing i mean the the situation they're in is terrible of course but um it was just nice to see and nice to know there's a book out there that's doing that and hopefully with its popularity and with its meaning um other people will follow suit. Not that others don't do it, mm. but maybe they'll do it more. Um, and the the other aspect, everybody said so many really great things that I agree with. Um, but for me personally, I grew up more or less for a good number of years. Um, I've mentioned this before, a beach house that I used to hang out with, with my, my father and his friends. Um, and forever and always on that TV, there was always certain things going, whether it was Batman 66 or Planet of the Apes. Um, or Jacques Cousteau specials and stuff like that. Um, John, the guy that owned the house, and his wife specifically, Cherry, was a huge, huge fan of like exploitation stuff and like black exploitation stuff. And she had all these VHS tapes and all these like specials recorded of all these, you know, wah wah pedal action flicks. And thumbing through this and reading this, the themes and the characters, specifically the main character that's beaten ass in, in such a nice way throughout uh, throughout the tail end of the book, um, brought me back to that time. And that was probably like my favorite times of my childhood were, were spent hanging out at that house. So it, it brought it back. Like I could smell the sea air while I was reading the book along with like the dirt, like the dingy sweat of, of the prison and the steel and taste in your mouth and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, it was a solid read and evoked a lot of uh, really cool memories for me. So uh, I enjoyed it. And I have a feeling that when I go back with uh bitch planet number two, that I'll be taken right back to there again. And it's just a nice, comfortable place for me to be reading. Mm. And I, so yeah, I think the Orange is the New Black comparison is very apt. Oh, very. Because I felt that immediately I love that reading show. it. Yeah, um, in the best ways too, not in any sort yeah. of like um, you know derivative way, just in the way that it's showing real people, uh, even though they're, it's obviously a science fiction yeah. uh, world. I want Tasty to show up, uh, being real thing, doing real things. Mm-hmm. Um, all right, so Bitch Planet number one um, and the Valiant number one for, for Stephanie's books of the week. Um, 
so I'm going to talk about Batgirl number 37 uh, for, for my book. Uh, and obviously it is the uh, hot button book of the week uh, for uh, many reasons. Um, unfortunately, most of which aren't having to do with the quality uh, of the book, mm-hmm. um, but for a depiction in the book. So for those of you who aren't reading Batgirl, obviously um, since 35, we've had this reinvention of, of, of Barbara with uh, Brendan Fletcher, uh, Cameron Stewart, and Babs Tarr at, at the helm. And she's been taken to Burnside, and she's been, um, you know, funned up in, in a lot of ways. The art has drastically changed, and she's become sort of this semi-celebrity in, in Burnside, which is sort of like the Brooklyn of, of Gotham City. And there's been some copycats going on and people who um, are pretending to be her. And there is one such uh, figure who is being very destructive and ruining uh, her name. And at the same time, there is an artist who is um, is profiting off of Batgirl by having a model, taking pictures, and selling it as art um, in, in, in his art gallery. And so Barbara is trying to figure out uh, what, what's the what going on here. Um, it leads to a major, major fight, um, um, a really cool action scene on a, on a, it's on a bridge, right? Yep. Yeah. And it's revealed that the person um, playing as Batgirl is, in fact, the same artist who is, um, who is profiting off of him, off of her. And he is a man, obviously. And there is a issue because it's a transgender uh, or cross-dressing person once again being portrayed as a villain, as a crazy, mm-hmm. unstable villain. And I just want to read real quick. This is what, um, after the controversy broke, uh, the the team behind Batgirl uh, wrote a apology letter. And I just want to read it before we get into our discussion. Um We have heard the complaints about this issue and are listening carefully to the reactions with grave concern. We could go on all day about our intentions for the issue and the character of Dagger Type, that's the artist, and what our goals were and and weren't. But our intentions do not invalidate legitimate reactions that that some have had to the story. Those reactions are honest and heartfelt and exist regardless of our creative intentions, and we don't wish to dismiss them. Instead, we want to acknowledge the hurt and offense that we've caused and express our sincerest apologies. We're all deeply troubled by the reaction to this issue and have made it a point of serious discussion amongst ourselves. While we expect a degree of controversy in regard to the issue of identity and the artistic process that this story was meant to evoke, we do now realize that our presentation of this character was flawed for any elements whatsoever of the story to have reminded readers of the sordid and misguided tropes that associate both drag and gender expression with duplicity. We deeply regret upsetting readers who place their trust in us. We were indebted to those who stand up to speak out about their perspective on stories like this. Their commentary leads to universally better storytelling from both our, both ourselves and others, and we hope to live up to that standard in the future. Um, regards, Cameron Stewart, Brennan Fletcher, and Babstar. So first of all, I want to say that it, it's it's not the typical thing to do, which is to come out and give a statement like this so quickly after mm-hmm. something happened, but it, it once again shows how tuned in they are to this community in this world that they know that you know this news travels very fast and there's no reason to hide from it you have to you have to dress it head on um and i put out a call on twitter today asking if if you are maybe if you listen to the podcast a lot more people listen to this podcast and probably frequent our twitter or or my twitter for that matter but i want to know if you were offended by it and why um I i would love to know because and we talk about this many times right um i'm a white dude 
you know, I don't straight white dude. I do not have the same experiences and the same barometer for offense for something like this. Uh, and I want to better understand why those things are issues. Now, intellectually, I do understand, right? There is a, if you imagine, you know, the transgressions against uh, representation in literature and comics and in all manner of media, um, the scales are tipped very heavily in the, in the, in the fact that of bad representation of those characters and whether it's fair or not, Cameron Stewart, Brendan Fletcher and Babs Tarr exist in a world where those issues exist, right? So they're adding what looks like another weight onto that bad side of the scale. And I can definitely see why that is an issue. Um, I can tell you what I thought of the the, the reveal and, and the book, and I would love to hear feedback on what, on what you think my perspective is skewed or wrong or right or whatever it might be. So what I took the character as um, is not someone who even identifies as transgender or maybe isn't, isn't really even a cross-dresser. I, I saw him as a selfish, attention-seeking, talentless artist who wanted to make a name for himself. That's, that's, that's how I perceived him. And he would do anything to do that. Um, and I did not see it as a slight against that community. But again, I'm not in that community. I don't have the same sensitivity to the, those issues. Um, I, I think that... Uh, you know, the issue does play with identity, definitely. I mean, back, superheroes are often all about identity, right? About the fact that you, you put one face on for the world and you put another face on, you know, in, in the dark. And uh, I think that, uh, I, I don't think the issue in any sort of narrative sense portrays that entire community as being duplicitous or being shifty. So I think they appears one person as that and they do a, a, a very specific job of depicting that. Uh, and I, I enjoyed the story very much. I thought that it did a great job. Um, w- the one thing I will say, offended or not, and uh, again, just like they said, if you're offended, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, it, there's no right or there's no wrong yes. to that. O- offense is something that happens, and and you have every right to be offended, just like I have a right not to be offended. But, and I don't think people deserve a pass because they're trying. But I think people deserve to be heard. If, if, if they're trying. And, it, and it, if you've listened to Cameron or Brendan or Babs talk about the book at all, you know that they are, you know, on the side of angels when they're, they're trying to right wrongs that have come before. And this very well might, might have been a misstep. But I think as a community, we need to be careful that we don't villainize people who are trying to do the right thing. Criticize them, talk to them, but... I, I, and obviously they're very receptive to it or they wouldn't have put out that statement. Mm-hmm. But you, you need to give the people credit who are trying. Um, don't let them off the hook, but at least engage them in a, in a civil conversation before branding them as something that possibly they're not. You know, um, And so that's the only thing I wanted to say just about in generalities about these kind of discussions. I want them to be discussions, not just anger coming from either side. Um, that being said, I think that the book, again, continues to look great. And the mysteries are starting to unravel with Barbara, I think, are great. I think just the little bit at the end where you're finding out there's somebody else behind what's happening here, I thought w- was really great. Yeah. Um, so. Well, the so far through three issues, one the little through line, the bubbling understory, is that someone does know Barbara's mm-hmm. Batgirl. So it's all been about identity. So more than likely, it was crafted as part of that whole arc. Yeah. You know, how do we turn this identity thing on its head? I read it as you did, Bobby. I did not catch it 
as something meant to be offensive, but mm. just a very old fashioned old movie sort of turnaround. Mm. <gasps> right. Oh my goodness. Where we, you know, it's the house of wax idea or something. Mm. Who's behind the mask. And it was, it was interesting, but as you say, we're, we're the default community here. Mm. We don't have the same life experience. So for anyone who is offended, they have every right to be, mm-hmm. but as the, the, the creative team said in their apology, it's about starting a conversation. So we have better storytelling. Yeah. And if that, Bit of if we turned it into information and not confrontation, we'll all be much better off moving down the road. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, yeah. So again, I want to hear from you guys. So email me Bobby at talkingcombooks dot com and let me know like how you're feeling about it and what you're feeling about it. And if enough people email me, I want to do a piece about this. Absolutely. So please um, do that if, if you get the chance. Um, but that's the, that's it for the, the book of the week segment. Um, that's Backroll number thirty seven. Uh, We're going to take a little break and come back and talk to Joshua Williamson. Right, we are back, and we're joined by a very special guest, writer of Ghosted, Birthright, and Nailbiter, Mr. Joshua Williams. And Josh, thank you so much for joining us on Talking Comics. No problem, guys. This will be fun. Yeah, we, we, we don't don't give us too many expectations before we we get into it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Oh, gosh. Nah, it'll be, it'll, be, it'll be good. It'll be good. So before we get into any comic book stuff, I I heard through the through the grapevine that you recently got engaged. Oh yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. congratulations. Yeah, I uh it was one of those things where I got the ring a little bit ago, um and her mom knew I had it, and so her, her mom was like a ticking time bomb, you know, of like <laughs> gonna say something by accident or tell somebody who would tell somebody who would post it on Facebook, you know? Um so I was like, what do I do? And I, I we're going to Hawaii at the end of the year, like we're doing the stuff, and I was thinking about doing it then i don't know it's one of those things where i didn't have a plan you know i, I didn't have like a uh, i didn't have like a master plan and so i had to pick the ring up i picked the ring up on friday and friday night i got home made dinner and then we were like just hanging out she was in her pajamas and my pajamas she was reading how to uh beat a bad guy in final fantasy 6 and i was like <laughs> reading comic books and i think like of all things ridiculousness was on uh, which kind of brought it full circle because when her and I first started dating, um, we would watch ridiculousness. <laughs> so, uh, which is this like you know people fall down funny show on MTV. I have no idea why we watched it when we first started dating. I think it was just like you know you're hanging out with somebody you're up all night and that's like what's on television. Mm-hmm. And so uh, and we only saw each other on the weekends the first year the first year we started dating only saw each other on the weekends i never saw her during the week if i saw her during the week it was like super rare um <laughs> uh, so we're just like sitting there and i was like yeah i'm just gonna do it now so i do it now pjs i like it yeah so i went upstairs got it came back down and then just very quickly did the whole like one knee thing and i made her stand up first and she was like what is wrong what is happening like what did you do and uh and i did it really quick uh and then you know things were things were cool. She caught her mom, 
and uh, yeah, it was good. It was good. And then I went to a party on Saturday night. Uh, one of the benefits of living in Portland is good. I think it's a really strong comic book community. Like a lot of people live here, and so I got to go to. Uh, I'm, I'm good friends with Scott Alley, who's the uh, editor in chief of Dark Horse, and he had a, a holiday cocktail party. And it was super, super cool going there. But that was the first time we started telling people was at that. So I think the first, the very first person I ever introduced my girlfriend to as my fiance was Kelly Sue DeConnick. It's the first person <laughs> I was like, oh, Kelly Sue, this is my fiance. It's just like, when did you have a fiance? I'm like, since last night. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, but I told people there, Scott, and, and I told Bendis um, as he was walking out, actually. Because it's really funny with Bendis is that, like, Whenever we're in social situations, situations together, we never end up really hanging out or talking, um, because obviously, like he's Brian, you know. <laughs> and uh, so, he, as he was walking out, like holding one of his many children, um, he was walking out, and I he started talking. He's like, "Oh, hey!" And he's like, "Hey, you know, it's another another party that we're both at. We never talk to each other." And I was like, "I know. Someday we'll figure it out." And then we started talking. I told him it was all. Uh, it was all very nice. It was a good night. It was funny too because I I also uh, met Chuck Palahniuk for the first time. Oh sweet! Wow. And I was standing next to the bar slash punch bowl full of alcohol, and uh, both of us were kind of stuck over there because on the other side of a table, and so we were kind of flanked on both sides, and we were both just kind of standing there. And I was like, "Fuck it!" So I started talking to him. I was just like, "Hey, so uh, comic books, right?" <laughs> <laughs> And uh, started talking to him for a while about Fight Club 2 and sort of uh, all this stuff and started talking about signings and fans and uh, the internet. And I had this, like, long conversation with him, which I did not expect at all. I thought it'd be one of those quick, like, yeah, right, cool. And then, like, you know, you walk away. But then we started having this, like, really long conversation. And he was, like, super, super down-to-earth, really cool guy, which I knew, but it was just one of those things you never... You never know who you're going to click. You're going to think that person's going to think you're a total weirdo, which he probably mm. still thought that. But um, <laughs> my girlfriend came over and we started talking, and then Scott Alley came over and we started talking about all kinds of stuff. And it was just really, uh, it was like, one of those cool, like, man, this weekend is fucking weird. Got engaged, talked to Chuck Palahniuk. <laughs> but, you know, I feel like I'm missing something. Something else happened, too. Um, but for my girlfriend, it was funny because she really likes Chuck Palahniuk's work and she really likes Chelsea Kane's work, and they both were there. Um, so for her, she was like, oh, my God, I really want to talk to Chelsea Kane. I'm like, because Chelsea Kane's a famous uh, crime novelist who also lives in Portland, who writes a lot of stuff about serial killers. Um, and there's times I want to talk to her, too, but she's also, like, those parties are so packed full of people. But anyway, uh, yeah, it's a weird, it's a weird time. It's a weird time. You checked all the boxes. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah. And then I watched, uh, did I watch any movies over the weekend? I don't think I did. I feel like I watched something. Oh, I watched. I finally watched Edge of Tomorrow. That was. The, oh, what do you think? Oh, I really liked it. Yeah, I knew. I knew. I wish I had kind of gone into it knowing nothing. You know, I wish I mm. went into it not knowing it was Groundhog Day. Um, <laughs> but uh, I really liked it. I really enjoyed it a lot. I, I, it was one of those ones I kept waiting for other twists to come in later, and, and uh, I liked it. I, I enjoyed it a lot. It's kind of weird watching a Tom Cruise movie. I feel like I haven't watched a Tom Cruise movie in forever. Um, <laughs> Where he's like straight out, he's, you know, he's one of those actors where it's like, it's hard to separate him from the character he's playing. Um, mm. You're just like, oh, it's Tom Cruise, you know, like you almost you don't you forget the character's name almost. You're just like, and this they say enough times because of the time travel stuff, you know it. Sorry, spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen that movie. <laughs> um, 
you're like, oh, Cage. I will, I will not forget that. Like, they say it repeatedly. Yeah, they say it a lot. Repeatedly. So you're just like, man. Um, but, uh, yeah, I really liked it. It was good. It's it a good movie. Yeah. Um, Haven't they changed the title on the video box? It's, like, it's now know, Live, wash, Die, Repeat. Oh, well, I was going to say Wash, Rinse, yeah. Repeat. Yeah, yeah, it used to be called... What was the original title? It's the All Edge You Need of Tomorrow. Kill. No, all, no. You need, all You Need Is Kill. Is oh, All You Need Is Kill. Manga, so right? they changed it yeah. three times. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant marketing. Yeah. They yeah. marketed that movie very poorly. <laughs> hey, people buy it three different times. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good movie, though. Yeah, um, I enjoyed it a bunch. It was a good yeah. one. So, Josh, you've had an insane year. Insane yeah. year. Um three i mean not i don't they didn't all debut this year but three series going um, all three ongoing going all very highly acclaimed what has it been like Do, ghosted nailbiter and birthright i have no idea i <laughs> i talked about this today i was actually talking to frank barberry about it this afternoon just keep and dropping names man yes. i'm going to because i talk to people all the time dude i talk to people like all day long so it's like i got who else did I talked to today? Frank Barberry, John Lehman, Joe Keating. I had talked to, talk to Falcon today, but usually Josh Falcon and I talk about it every day on the phone. He'll probably call while we're talking, because uh, usually he calls me either when he's picking up his daughter or when he's doing his like daily walk. Uh, well, because Falcon is like my best friend in comics and, and and in life in a lot of ways. Um, so we talk every day on the phone, like a pair of dummies. Uh, but. Uh, <sighs> It's kind of weird. I don't know. I always feel like I live kind of a weird understanding of those things. Part of the thing is, you know, I've been, I started working at a comic book store when I was like 14 and I worked all the way through college. And then I started doing like mini comics and all this kind of stuff when I was younger. And it's hard from the inside to actually know what's going on out there. I know I was busy. You know, I know that like from October to January, I had like six <laughs> books come out every month. <laughs> you know, because there was uh, Nailbiter, Ghosted, Birthright, Captain Midnight, Predator, Robocop. Yeah, Robocop. That's it. Those six books were coming out. And at the same time, I was writing stuff that, like, hasn't been announced and no one's ever even heard of, you know? So it's like, for me, I know I was so busy and really busy to the point where I was, like, getting sick over the summer. But from the outside, I have no idea what the perception is a lot of times. And it's hard when you're talking to other creators because they have no idea, really, you know? And it's hard because we all talk to each other. We're kind of aware of what each other are doing. It's really difficult to see from the outside. Like, when you tell me I'm having, like, I had a big year, it, it's a part of me is still like, like, oh, I guess I did. Like, it took me a minute. It takes a second mm-hmm. to kind of to, to get your head around that idea. Um, I don't know. It's just uh, busy. <laughs> right. Busy. That's, <laughs> that's the... Uh, <laughs> That's how it felt. Like, I felt really busy. I mean, it was cool. It was really great when, you know, the year, the year started for me at Image Expo, really. Um, you know, because I announced Nailbiter there. And then we just kind of, you know, ran through. And then six months later, we did Birthright. And then Birthright came out in October. So, like, six months after, six months almost to the week after Nailbiter came out, Birthright came out. Uh, and I'm really glad of the response. Because, again, like, with Birthright in particular, I think was when I was worried about if people were going to like. Oh, man, I thought people were going to hate Nailbiter. Really? I remember, yeah, dude, I remember, like, the week before Nailbiter came out, just being so stressed out about it and, like, reading it over and over again and being like, oh, my God, we're screwed, we're so screwed. And, like, <laughs> uh, you know, Fialkov and I, last year, before New York Comic Con, we taught at this school in Connecticut, this, like, small school in Connecticut. And we were in, you know, our hotel room talking about Nailbiter, Birthright, uh, 
God, so crazy. This is this was 2013. Yeah, so it was right before New York Comic Con 2013. We were talking about Nailbiter, Birthright, Bunker, and Life After, and talking about them, right, and and arguing with each other about what we saw flaws in each other's work. And it's like friendly arguing where you're just like, no, you got to do it like this, you got to do this. And there was stuff with Birthright where I was like, oh, man, you're totally right. And there was some stuff with Nailbiter I was totally right. But then there was some stuff where I was like, no, I'm, I'm sticking to my gut on this. <laughs> and so as we got closer to it, part of me was like, oh, my God, what if I was wrong? Um, <laughs> and so when Nailbiter came out and people really liked it, I remember it was funny. That was uh, Mike and I had met each other for the first time that day. Like the day Nailbiter number one came out was <laughs> Mike and I met each other for the first time. And that was our third project together because we did Masks Monsters together. We did uh, that Krang special together and then Nailbiter. And so we met each other while that was going on. And then we're stuck with each other for four days because we were, <laughs> we, were, we were doing two separate signings, one in California, one in Ohio. And so we were traveling with each other for four days. It was crazy. God. Um, <laughs> and uh, we both were like kind of weird because like it's going to sound really strange, but maybe not, not strange. But, you know, Twitter is not the real world. You know, <laughs> um, so it's really weird when you have like, you know, a hundred people telling you this book is amazing on Twitter. Does that mean that it's actually successful, you know, or that that it, it's good? Um, so there's a party that has to separate that out and just kind of like make sure you keep working and don't get don't have an ego trip. Don't buy into your own hype, you know. Mm-hmm. So in the effort of trying to not buy into your own hype, you sometimes almost go backwards. <laughs> Where you get to a point where you're like, you don't believe people, almost. Um, so there you go. That answers your question. Oh. <laughs> yes, it does. Absolutely. Because I, I think it's interesting from coming from our side of the table, right? Where well, all we do is read everything and pay attention to what everyone's saying about everything. Um, to the people who actually create the stuff who don't necessarily have that that same tuned-in feeling to, to what's, you know, what's going on. And I wonder, like, you know... This, the last year plus for you, I feel like everything that's come out that I've read has been has been great. And do you do you feel something different when you're writing these books like Ghosted and Nailbiter and and Birthright um, that you feel like you're you're on another level, or does it just feel like it's always felt for you? No, it's definitely different. I think um, it's definitely different. But there's like a lot of factors involved uh, on a personal level and that professional level that kind of contributed to that. I think for a long time I was sort of in like a weird mimic rut where I was trying to write like other writers and not trying to just do what I want to do. Um, I really want to do books that I, that I would want to read, right? Like I always tell people when they're, when I'm talking to or trying to break in, like you should want to do comics that you would want to read, right? If you wouldn't want to buy your own book, there's a problem. And I think for a minute I was not doing books that I would, that I would have read. And, I don't know. I just got fed up with it. I got fed up with it, and then I, I think some things from Bendis's class when I was in Bendis's uh, writing class finally started to kick in in my head a little bit more. Um, and then Ghosted, like Ghosted, was a big fat big thing for me. Was that I was just unhappy with everything I was writing, and then I was like, "Well, this is this is the book I want to do. I want to do a crime and horror book. Like this is really what it is. I'm a Vertigo kid. Like I, I grew up loving Vertigo comics. Why am I not doing books like Vertigo?" You know, like, why am I not doing a book like that? What am I doing over here doing this stuff and not being as critical? I'll tell you that. Okay. So, oh man, 
last couple of years have been weird. I mean, I remember when uh, I was writing Ghosted, and Ghosted took some time to write the first five issues, and I was struggling on certain things of it. But then I remember when I turned in issue six, and I turned in issue six right when uh, I signed the birthright paperwork. So I went to, I went down to L.A. to meet up with Kirkman and uh, the rest of Skybound to talk about the plans for Birthright. And this is a long time ago. This is in spring of 2013. And so I go down there, and we talk about everything. And we were also talking, Ghosted hadn't even come out yet. And so we were talking about Ghosted. And I was there for two days. And on the walk back to my friend's house, who lives really close to Skybound, I uh, plotted out Ghosted 6 in my head. Right, based on some of the conversations I had with Kirkman and with my editor, and just you know, it was there. It felt fully formed in my head. Like when I'm writing, I always try to visualize the comic in my hands as if I'm actually page turning. Um, so I remember writing it and turning it in, and then my editor Sean Mackowitz of Skybound was like, "This is the most confident script you've ever done." Like it, it felt like I turned a corner, and I was like, "You know, I felt the same way." Like I don't know what happened exactly, why that particular issue, why issue six felt like that. I don't know what it was. I think I just figured something out, and I felt like I had a publisher who had a lot of faith in me, um, and were listening to me, and I think that that helped a lot with that. Um, I remember when we were doing the Alien Predator Prometheus meetings. We were doing these writer room meetings with um, Paul Van. This is gonna sound really harsh, and it might paint someone in a bad light, but it's because they're my friend. Uh, that it's that they were they were able to say this to me honestly, you know it was me Kelly Sue DeConnick, uh, Chris Bella, Paul Tobin, Chris Roberson, a bunch of editors, Patrick Reynolds who's the artist on Aliens, all sitting in a room with uh, Scott Alley and Randy Stradley trying to figure out uh, what we were going to do for this universe. The very first meeting we had was super intense, super intense, and I don't want to. I can't say this out. I can't tell you who it was, but there was another creator in the room who was like a consultant at first. We've never talked about, we're actually not allowed to talk about. He was super intense. And I think other writers in the room were afraid to be, not afraid, that's the wrong word. They weren't as confrontational with it. And I was super confrontational. Uh, And I was super on it. And I remember my whole thing, you know, I, I had no fear in that room which was surprising to me i thought i'd be really nervous but i didn't i had no fear and i was able to like you know really go into stuff um and afterward i saw bendis and bendis was like hey so i heard about the very first meeting and i heard you kicked ass like you did awesome like everyone is really impressed with you and everybody is really happy and they thought that you did a really good job and i was like oh man awesome so then uh, that weekend, Scott Alley used to come to my house. We would watch Dexter and American Horror Story together and Breaking Bad. So he would come over. We have these little marathon sessions of whatever was on that week, right? So he comes over, and he's like, hey, I really want to talk to you about the meeting. And I'm like, yeah, what's up? And he's like, you did such a good job. Like, you super kicked ass. You were super intense. You were super thoughtful of story. Like, you really, really nailed it. And I was like, yeah, yeah, and? And he says, and I will always remember this, he says, where is that in your scripts? Hmm. And I was like, oh, fuck, dude. I was like, it was one of those ones, man. It's like, it's not like, oh, man, it's like a punch, but not really, you know? And it comes from a friend who's being very honest to you. And, and I was like, he's like, yeah, you know, you sit there and you know a lot about story. And he's like, you know, we'll sit here and we'll watch Breaking Bad and we'll break it down and we'll talk about the themes of the story and, and all this, this stuff about character motivations and stuff. But 
he felt like sometimes my scripts were lacking that. And that was right in the middle of me writing Birth Right Number One. <laughs> so I feel like all these little contributing factors sort of just kept like spinning around to me being better. Um, life went through some, I went through some weird changes, like uh, personal stuff in life and sort of had to grow up a little bit. And yeah, all this just kind of came around to it. And I know that the stuff I do better now is better than maybe two years ago. Um, all right, cool. What else do you want to talk about? <laughs> how are you guys doing? How is, uh, how do you guys feel about comic books right now? We feel you guys pretty happy with everything. Yeah, pretty great. We just uh, we actually just recorded, but they won't air until the three weeks after the show comes out. We just recorded like six hours of best of 2014 podcasts. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah we that's intense. we sat in, like a room, like we thunderdomed it, and we um, figured that's out nice. who our nominees yeah. and everything were. What we the way we do it is that we. We sit down, we debate all the nominees, we get our nominees down to five for each category, and then we spend the three weeks where the nominee shows are playing for us to make sure we're caught up on the other the books that are nominated that maybe other people brought to the table that we haven't we're not um, fully caught up on. So that way we can make like an informed decision when we do our yeah. picks. So they come out a little bit later than everybody else's, but um, we, we feel like it's the best way for us to kind of give it our best the best that you know, the most official that a, a list of yeah, best of yeah. something can be. You know? Yeah, I think it's difficult. I think it's fun people do best of lists at like December first. I mean, imagine if you had already done a best of list on December first and missed like Rumble and, and Bitch Planet. Yeah, and, yep. you know. Uh, but anyway. Yeah. yeah, I mean, well, Bitch Planet made a uh, it makes a you know it definitely makes an appearance in our in our discussions um, for some of the stuff that we're we're talking about, and mm-hmm. it, it was very interesting because and we'll hear this later, but like we started talking about it and I had been focused so much on all the stuff that had come out before I was catching up on that I hadn't read the issue yet. So everybody was talking oh. about it and I was like, man, I haven't even read it yet. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. You had three it's whole funny days. It's like that. It's, uh, it's funny how it's like that. That book was such a, like, a build up to that comic that it was such a part of the conversation even though it hadn't even come out yet. Yeah, you know? like Because yeah. it just came out last week. Yeah, I know. And, it, and it's everywhere already. <laughs> I mean, what have you been loving yeah. as far as other people's comics, Josh? Oh, man. Um... I read a lot. I always tell this people, it's such a weird thing. Like, I mean, I drop probably, God, man, way too much money. I probably shouldn't say out loud. But I get a lot of hardcovers, too. So I buy a lot of single issues, and I buy a lot of trades, a lot of hardcovers. But I do, like, massive. I actually uh, did a review, like, finance review of just the hardcovers that I bought this year. and was like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, but, oh, man, I like East of West. I like Sex Criminals. I like uh, Deadly Class. A lot, of, a lot of, you know, the image staples, I feel like, right now, like Saga. Uh, I like Shudder. Uh, I like Hellboy, Ape Sapien, BPRD. With uh, with DC Comics, I think the only comic I read from them right now is Batman. I was reading Wonder Woman, the Azarella Wonder Woman stuff, uh, but I still read Batman. Sometimes I read Batman and Robin. It's really weird. Like, I... Uh, We'll kind of like go off and on with it. I'll, I'll grab a stack of them and, and at the store, and I'll just like power through them. But I really like that team, and it's so crazy. I think that team has been consistent the entire time. Yeah, um, yeah. So so crazy. Like, I think that book is sort of forgotten, even though it's sort of important if if what's going on in it. Um, but I read American Vampire uh, at Marvel. I read a ton of Marvel stuff right now. Um, like, I read all of Bendis' stuff, the Guardians of the Galaxy books, and uh, and Sam's Star-Lord, and what else? What else? What else? What else? What else? 
the new Captain America book, Mark Way's Daredevil. Isn't it Thor, crazy? Isn't it ahead. crazy how Guardians of the Galaxy is becoming like another X Men Avengers type of brand over at Marvel? I mean, at this point, we have Guardians of the Galaxy. We have um, Inhumans. We, well, Inhumans not really part of Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. Oh well, no, no! Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but we have Guardians. They're the creating these new brands. Yeah, yeah. Like Guardians of the Galaxy. We have Rocket. We've got Star Lord. The Gamora book is coming. That's right. You know, um, a lot of the reason why I think yeah. Howard Duck is getting a new series Howard Duck, is because he, uh, his oh. appearance. Yeah, in- he was in the movie for like twenty seconds. Yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, you know, it is. It is crazy. Yeah. But I guess if you think about how like uh, the stuff comes in waves, I remember when Avengers were nothing. Mm-hmm. Remember when like you couldn't sell an Avengers comic? You couldn't <laughs> like like the uh, Iron Man book wasn't doing that hot. Captain America wasn't doing that hot. Thor wasn't doing that hot. And then freaking Bendis came in with New Avengers when he did Avengers Assembled. I think it like really so remember because there was a time where I felt like the Avengers brand wasn't doing that well. It wasn't even just the movie stuff. The movie stuff obviously blew it up. But I mean, before that, it felt like those books weren't doing really well. I mean, there was a whole time period where like Chuck Austin right was writing the Avengers for a while. Like people completely forget about that and. And then it kind of turned this corner. Um, and, and then in the comics got bigger. But now with the movie, with Guardians of the Galaxy, it'd be silly for them not to. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you know? absolutely. But yeah, it is nutty. Uh, a friend of mine and I played this game. Uh, sometimes basically it's like it's the fuck you, shut up game. <laughs> and basically it's like we talk about stuff that now is happening that if we had talked about this two years ago. You would have been like, oh, fuck you, shut up. Like, <laughs> And Guardians of the Galaxy being the number one movie of the year and also being like a good movie and, and launching a whole new franchise for Marvel that is comparable to the Avengers. Yeah. I would have been like, shut, fuck you, shut up. <laughs> like, you know, I mean, it's awesome, though. I love Guardians of the Galaxy. I was a huge fan of Annihilation. Like every time I see um, Andy Schmidt, who's the ed- who was the editor on the original Annihilation series, who like he he sort of shepherded that that run in the beginning uh, when no one wanted to touch the cosmic stuff at all and they thought the cosmic books were going to be a, a complete disaster. Um, he did Annihilation. Annihilation was a big deal. I freaking love Annihilation. It's one of my, my favorite Marvel like, events. And so every time I see him, I'm always like, that, that, that Annihilation, man, awesome. <laughs> like, I don't care that it was like almost 10 years ago. I'll still go on about how much I love it. Um, <laughs> Which also Annihilation was almost ten years ago, Jesus. Yeah. But uh yeah, like I love all that cosmic stuff. And so to me it's just like this is great. I freaking love Guardians of the Galaxy. I liked it back then, so I think it's cool. So it is kinda crazy to see all this stuff going on. There's a lot of weird stuff with too, like uh, I used to work for a professional wrestler about ten years ago. Wow. Uh I used to work for R B D. Oh wow. <laughs> and uh one of the things we would do is we do these signings. We would do these crazy professional wrestler signings. So about once a month, I would do this signing with some wrestler, right? And, you know, I do, like, Bret Hart, Kane. I did a Chris Benoit one, which is a story from the other day. Oh, uh, Spike Dudley, like, um, you know, all these wrestlers. It's it just intense. And one of them was Batista while he was champion. And, and he was kind of a dick. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> And it was also one of the weirdest experiences because we had a problem with security and there was no security in the back when I went to walk him back to his car and we got attacked, we got mobbed. Oh my God. And I had to like actually rip people off his car so he could pull out of this lot and get out of the parking lot safely. Wow. And I mean, I'm like, how old was I? I think I was like 25 yanking 
full-grown adults that are pounding on this like cavalier's uh, <laughs> glass, you know, like <laughs> slamming their hands on it. It always reminds me of that scene from the Tom Cruise War of the Worlds, yes, where those people yeah. are mobbing the the van. It looked like that. Yeah, they were mobbing his van, mobbing his car, and they're just like slamming their hands on the glass. And I'm like, how to pull them off? So have all that happen. And then, like, ten years later, I'm watching him be Drax, and, and it's so weird. <laughs> like, such a strange thing. But I love that movie. I saw it twice in the theaters. Like, like yeah, I freaking thought it was great. Yeah, I mean, that movie. that movie's awesome. Um, Bob, I know you have some questions about some influences, right? Sure, definitely. Having read yeah, Ghosted and, and really enjoyed it, it, it's both sort of old-fashioned and new at the same time. And Bobby was even mentioning this sort of like an Ocean's Eleven kind of vibe that goes with it. Mm-hmm. Did you read, I know you were talking about Vertigo before, did you read any of the old creepy and eeries of those sort of things, any of that tie into what yeah. your vibe is yeah. on that? It's funny because Nailbiter is a lot more influenced by that stuff than Ghosted. Okay. Ghosted was really influenced by, oh, man, a lot of different stuff, but like Parker, uh, like the Parker book series, mm-hmm. and uh, speaking of comic book stuff, like Preacher plays a lot into that, and Constantine... Uh, a lot of stuff that Brubaker does influence Ghosted a lot. Uh, but yeah, definitely definitely creepy, eerie, and Tales from the Crypt. Um, those really influence Nailbiter. This is something that not many people have ever figured out, and I always tell them this. Like, all the names in Nailbiter are tied into something, right? Like, they're all they're all something, and they're not something related to story. It's just me dicking around. Um, <laughs> but one of them is, is the Nailbiter, Warren. His full name is Edward Charles Warren. And some people thought, oh, I was a fan of ECW, which I am, but that wasn't what it was. <laughs> His initials are EC Comics, Warren Comics. <laughs> so that's why it's EC. That's, that's why his name is Edward Charles Warren, because EC Comics and Warren Comics, who published Tales from the Crypt, Creepy, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's where that came from. Um, yeah, Ghosted, I, Ghosted's funny, because it was really influenced by, like, Criminal, and, again, Criminal Parker, uh, really... Me just knowing I wanted to do a book in a haunted house, and I wanted to do a crime book in a haunted house. It was like that kind of where it started from, um, and then going away from there. Cool, cool. Um, Steve, I know you had a question about process. I do. Yeah, why don't you ask away? Okay, so you've got a couple of books on your plate, a couple of different series. What do you do to mentally prepare before sitting down to write each one? Like, How do you get into that world and feel those vibes before you start writing onto the screen? Um, it's a few things. Uh, for the most part, I keep notebooks. I have, every book has its own notebook. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times I'll get that notebook and I'll basically just start jotting notes down and, and uh, trying to get into that character's head and trying to find my place. Because that is a challenge. If I don't find myself in that book in that moment, like, I'll get, I'll get lost or it'll suck. You know, it just, it just doesn't work out. So, like, with Ghosted and Nailbiter, I have playlists. Like, I have Ooh, music that I listen to. Nice. I like that. Um, sometimes with, with Nailbiter, I'll just go downstairs and put on a horror movie and just sort of, like, have my notebook and, like, half-ass watch while I'm just, like, taking notes. Um, and that's because so much of Nailbiter is playing with horror tropes. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I'll be watching a horror movie and I'll be like, oh, yeah, you know, that's a good horror trope. You know, like, oh, yeah, I want to do that one thing, duh. Um, and so... He has music. Like, I know there are certain things that, like, uh, Jackson and Ghosted. So we're Ghosted. I have to hear Jackson's voice. If I don't hear Jackson's voice, I can't get started. Yeah. Like, he's such a smart-ass, like, character. Has a bunch of one-liners. That really, it all starts and stops with him. 
It's all about trying to find those one liners for him. It's all about finding situations. So like Ghost of Number Eight. Mm-hmm. I wasn't stuck on Ghost of Number Eight. Oh no, this is what happens. I was in the middle of writing Ghost of Number Seven. So I'm, this is an ex- idea of process, I guess. So I'm writing <laughs> Number Seven. So I'm, I'm I'm writing Ghost of Seven. And uh, this is before I moved. I'm in my apartment in my office writing Ghost of Seven. And I got the outline for eight. And I was talking to my editor. And, and originally it was going to open with Jackson getting tortured. And my editor was like, ah, don't don't have him getting tortured. Hmm. Because I feel they were like, we feel like there's been a lot of torture lately in comics. And they, were, they had just done a bunch of torture stuff and walked dead. And they were kind of like, maybe find something else to do. Find something else. And I remember he said something... He basically said that this particular torture scene I was going to do was kind of cliche, right? Mm-hmm. And so I finished writing seven. I remember I, I had finished writing seven, and then I went to uh, get like I went to walk to get dinner, and I had my headphones on. I was listening to music, and and I was listening to something that just kind of reminded me of Jackson. Do you know and what I it started, was? Do you really want to know what it was? I, I really want to know. Yeah. <laughs> It was a Macklemore song. There you go. <laughs> and it was just because it was the fast talking and the whole, like, how he talks about things. Now, Jackson's kind of a fast talker. And so I'm walking, and I had this moment where I was thinking about the note, and I was thinking about it, and I basically started this whole thing of torture being cliche and Jackson accusing the people who are holding him hostage that they were asking if he was going to torture them, and them saying they were not going to torture him because torture was cliche, right? Hmm. So I kind of used my conversation with the yeah. editor... <laughs> became the conversation that those two characters had and then i remember walking home and just like sitting down and typing just just like sitting down put my food aside and started typing and it was like six o'clock at night by like 1 a.m i had had almost the entire structure written nice that's why editors are often the unsung heroes of (laughs) comics (laughs) yeah and it was supposed to be due by friday and so I was able to get a lot of it. it was, I think it was like a Wednesday. I remember writing most issue Wednesday, Thursday, and then Friday, and turning in seven and eight on Friday afternoon. Being nice. like, here is seven and eight. My editor being like, what the fuck? Like, <laughs> uh, like it's funny. They they want you to turn things in early, but I think they get a little frustrated when you turn two in at once. <laughs> Pro tip. For you. Yeah. So I uh, they don't be overloaded. It's the same thing. So I turned everything in. Um, but yeah, like, like right now I'm writing an issue of Captain Midnight this week. And so for me, I talked to my editor about it a little bit. And then I have my notebook and I start just, you know, just taking down notes and thinking about the scenes and thinking about how I would want to read and what I want to do. I think with outlining is important ahead of time. I think if you outline a lot and, and try to really, you know, don't be a slave to it, but try to just write out these outlines. You know, yeah. have ideas of what you want to do ahead of time. And dude, it could be junk. It could be like total. Well, you got to have the bones. To be yeah. able to, to work for it. could be right? total vomit. You know, you can just be <laughs> typing up and writing down whatever. Doesn't mean it has to be in the script. There's all kinds of stuff to get cut. I'll write whole scenes of dialogue. Yeah. Or I'll write like a whole conversation and cut out more than half of it and just like narrow it down right. to the fundamentals. I don't know if you guys saw Birdman. Oh, I want to so bad. Uh, there's a scene where Edward Norton and Mal Keaton are talking about a scene in a play they're both in and basically edward orton tells michael keaton you just said the same thing three times in a row that you said it differently but the intent is all the same you should cut it down to just the one and so that's i was like yeah that's what you're doing comics all the time you 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 only have so much space and you don't want to overload the reader with word balloons i hate when i read a comic and there's like a shit ton of word balloons (laughs) so um you know i I feel like if you start to notice there's too many word balloons there's a problem Mm -hmm. some writers 
I think write a lot like Bendis. Bendis is a good example. Uh, Bendis writes a lot, but I almost forget there's too many word balloons after a while. You just kind of like you, you, it blends in because he does it well. Yeah. Uh, where some people they give you, oh my, you're looking at it, you're like, oh my god, I'm not gonna read this. I hate when I open up a page one and I see like a shit ton of word balloons. And it's like, <laughs> ugh, ugh, my god. Well, certain writers um, will make you fall into the scene and you you won't even notice them after a while. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So there's a lot of that going on. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot going on with me getting ready. But that, what I do is I get all my notebooks and then I sort of create this like page by page outline of what I'm going to do with like dialogue notes and scene notes. And I get excited about certain things. And I figure certain things out and, and then start uh, playing with it. I remember like nail buyer number two was written and I hated it, Ooh. hated it. And then went back through and, and ripped it apart and, and you know, figured out the fundamentals of things. It's like, if you have a book about, Serial killers, they're butterbee serial killing. <laughs> and, you know, I always come back to this joke, and I was giving someone else a hard time about this the other day, but, like, in Jurassic Park, my favorite scene is when Ian Malcolm says, like, there will be dinosaurs on this dinosaur ride. Like, <laughs> and so I always think about that. Like, I always think about how, like, if your book is about this, you know, you can play with it. Like, if it's a Batman comic, it's have Batman in it, right? But mm-hmm. you can play with that idea. If Batman's not in it, that's part of the story. Mm-hmm. Right? If Batman, you know, like, Gotham Central didn't have Batman in it, and that became part of the story. It was they didn't want Batman around. They didn't want his help. Uh, so, again, like I try to keep that in mind. So with Nailbiter, I'm always like, there better be serial killers in here, and I, you know, <laughs> we'll, we'll rejig it. We'll re-mess uh, with it. But, yeah, so the notebooks are a huge help with the process stuff. And just sort of like, my notebooks are a mess. I've thought about taking pictures of them uh later like after an issue comes out but then i'm like oh man everyone wants to see how horrible my handwriting save, is. <laughs> save them for the hard covers man yeah. put them in the yeah. back as uh, supplemental yes. material that's a good idea because right, i think with nailbiter we want to do like a big 10 issue hardcover and i think that would totally fit with, with the whole serial killer vibe if i put my notes in there choose a couple yeah. scan them in yeah. and then yeah there you go you put your serial killer notebooks into your serial killer book it would be yeah. definitely yeah. appropriate yeah. That's your google yeah. search history must be amazing <laughs> Oh, dude, it's intense. And it's funny because like, I know people make that joke, right? Like, that's a joke people make online all the time, right? And I, Justin, Justin Jordan does it a lot, too, where he makes those jokes about, like, oh, my Google search. But it's like, no, dude, it does. It does. <laughs> like, um, oh, man. Something happens in 9 and 10 of Nailbiter, and I had to look it up to get Mike reference. And I was like, hey, I'm going to look this reference up. And I told him I was about to look up. And he was like, oh, don't look that up. That's horrible. <laughs> and I looked it up and saw like real life versions of what i had been trying to look up and was like oh god dude (laughs) um one of the things i have is i have this magazine that's like this pulp magazine here at the house it's a new it's a new thing that somebody put out but it's basically a magazine about serial killers and it looks like something from an alternate reality where they celebrate serial killers (laughs) and i bought this thing and i just had it downstairs for a while and so people would come over and they would be like, oh, what's this? And they'd flip open and be like, oh, my God. Because there's like straight up dead bodies in there. Like <laughs> nice. there's pictures of Jeffrey Dahmer's posed victims oh, wow. in that magazine. Like there's a picture where he had like cut someone's head off and then bent their body backwards. So there what was there now decapitated part of their head oh. was like on this bed. And he had arched their back. So they were like a little arch with their feet. It's crazy. And that picture's just in there. It's just chilling. <laughs> and there's a lot of pictures like that. I remember my friends came over. <laughs> she leave it in your bathroom. In the... 
Was that all oh my Wave god? in your bathroom, bathroom for people yeah. to yeah. read. <laughs> it's pretty fucked up. I've had friends who write horror comics, so I'll show it to, and they're here, and they're just like, oh god, we have this. <laughs> um, but at one point, I was like, a buddy of mine had come over to the house, and that was like on the coffee table. And <laughs> I went to get something, and I heard like a yell, and I came back, and the magazine was just like on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> You know, because he just opened it up and like dropped it. Dude, we need to talk. <laughs> Intervention. Oh, it's yeah, yeah. Did you take your work too seriously? <laughs> well, what's crazy was I found it at a grocery store aisle, which means anybody could have picked it up. Like a little kid could have grabbed that thing and been like totally seeing like a shit ton of dead bodies. That's crazy. Saving his allowance for a subscription. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, Bob, I know you to follow sure, up there. Sure. Well, while we're on this sort of subject, this is going to sound like yeah. a very weird question. Mm-hmm. Do you have a favorite serial killer? <laughs> No, I hate that question. <laughs> People ask that, I was going to be like, I mean, what would you do if I was like, I'm a big fan of Charlie? You know what I mean? <laughs> no. Um, best man have, at his I wedding. Some, yeah. yeah, I know, right? I have some I have some that I know more than others. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I, 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 for whatever reason, know about certain serial killers more than others. What's funny is my girlfriend, she has a degree in criminal behavior, and so she knows a lot about Charles Manson and the Manson murders. Like, she knows way more than I do. Um, and uh, it's hard, but we'll talk about, like, her favorite book, one of her favorite books is Helter Skelter. And it's interesting talking to her about that stuff, because it's not like she has, a, it's not like Charles Manson is her favorite serial killer. She just knows a lot about him. Mm-hmm. And I'm the same way with Jeffrey Dahmer. Um, I don't know why I know more about Jeffrey Dahmer than any other serial killer. Um, but I know more about him and the rest for some reason i don't know i think it's just research mm-hmm. just research and there's a, there was a lot of material for him um no no favorite serial killer. Okay. <laughs> well uh on that note it goes some listener questions um okay go ahead uh, at kelly heron on twitter says where does the inspiration for the serial killers and nail biter come from real life or imagination um both both uh like warren comes from the idea that i, I shoot my nails a lot um and i had written this short story because i was trying to pitch i was trying to pitch for to creepy this story about something called the nail biter and it just sort of bled into me thinking about my own weird paranoias with uh chewing my nails and how certain people react to chewing your nails and stuff and then it came so that's where nail that's where warren came from the rest are me just being like what would be what would be totally screwed up uh Originally, we had we had thirty two serial killers. We decided to cut down to sixteen because we thought thirty two would be too much, which was which was right. <laughs> and and then we had like the eight that we knew we needed for the first year. We knew we needed these eight, and then we were like, okay, well, let's flesh out the rest. And I remember Mike and I were like, this will be really easy, right? Like coming up with eight, you, you know, eight more or so sixteen unique serial killers. This will be really easy. And uh, that day was long. Like <laughs> we kept on going back and forth. We came up with some dumb ideas, dumb ideas. But then new ones will come up, like because we have a list. We've actually switched some out. We've been like, you know, because as we start working, we start realizing like, oh, this was actually kind of close to this one, and I'll have an idea for something that's screwed up, and I'll just put it in there. And sometimes it is from real life. Like I'll see, I don't want to ruin stuff that's in the book, but like I will see something that happens in real life, and I'll be like, oh, if that, if I applied that to a serial killer, that would be interesting, and I can, I can see that scene, I can see that visual of of them in there and then again like my girlfriend was a you know she has a degree in criminal behavior and so uh, talking with her about some of the criminals that she has met uh kind of led to me developing some of this stuff uh and then just trying to think of stuff that's visually cool and creepy 
stuff that we could do this gross. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, at Matt Loon on Twitter wants to know, he says, love Birthright. Can you explain your process for world building? Uh, with Birthright, it was a mix of me and Andre where <clears throat> we had this idea kind of for the world where it's supposed to be this war-torn world, but we didn't want to be fantasy. Uh, we talked a lot about the tropes of fantasy when we started to put together that the fantasy world. And we started talking a lot about like these sort of family tropes. Uh, and like the premise of the book is sort of like what happens after the adventure's over and, and this twist of this fantasy stuff. We wanted to, we looked at a lot of fantasy and we realized so much of fantasy originated from this like kind of European twist uh, that we wanted to avoid that. And Andre is, he lives in Brazil. So him and I talked a lot about like his point of view of the world. Because my point of view of uh, fantasy does come from a very like medieval European sort of view. And so we started talking about like, okay, well, let's look at other cultures in the world and imagine if fantasy originated, like this kind of fantasy, like orcs and that kind of stuff originated, like, you know, the whole sandal, sword and sandals and sword and sorcery, mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. What if that originated someplace else and start playing with that? And looking what was out there, looking, we kind of cherry picked a lot, and then start just drawing and trying to come up with this idea of a war torn fantasy world. Um, and Andre started, man, he started doing so many designs for things. Originally, Rook, who is the mentor character, who's an orc, originally he was going to be some kind of animal. We were talking about him being a griffin or something. We weren't sure what we were going to do, or he was going to be something, some kind of hybrid of animals. Um, you know, your brain, my brain automatically... One of the things that Ben has talked a lot about in class was go beyond the cliche, right? Go beyond your first thought. And my first thought was like, oh, he'll be half lion, half man. You know, he'll be like a walking Aslan. And I was like, no, I gotta get away from that. I gotta walk past that. And at one point, Andre drew so many freaking designs for the bad guy characters of the book. I mean, dude, it's it's intense. Like, when we have a hardcover of that, it's gonna be crazy how many, hard, how many designs he did. And at one point I saw this orc, and he was like, oh, I think this orc will just be some throwaway orc. And I was like, no, nah, man, that's that's the guy. Like, that's that's Rook. And I was like, you know, here's the thing, is that now him being an orc, now I can be like, oh, at one point he was a bad guy, and then met, found the prophecy, and then decided to, to enact the prophecy instead of continuing to be a bad guy, right? Uh, which is like a spoiler for much, much dead later down the line. But that's like, that's like so far down the line that it's not even a spoiler, right? Like it's just something we'll get to. But like the idea that Rook used to be a bad guy and now is a good guy and how he believes this prophecy and how much he has invested and sacrificed for Mikey, that started building that world and building those characters. So I started to really take shape with it and then talking a lot about the bad guy and that the name of the thing that's in, that has infected Mikey is called the Nevermind. And so talking a lot about the Nevermind and the mythology about how Mikey has it now, but the Pell Rider had it then, and sort of just, you know, it's just like, it's kind of like it's, it, it, it snowballs, you know? Um, and then building that map, <clears throat> like making an actual map helped a lot and thinking about the world and, I was having fun with it. That's sort of my process for it. Just having fun with it. Having an artist definitely helps. That having Andre sort of go nuts and just come up with a million different designs, even the designs that we ended up not using for characters, we're still going to use because they were so unique and different. And we were able to like build. Like you would see something and be like, "Well, that doesn't work here, but that can work there." We could totally use that for something else. Uh, yeah, with that book, with the world building, 
so much of it was in my head for so long that it was nice to sort of have this like artistic interpretation of it. And then that just made it, you know, once I was able to see it, it really helped me start developing what I wanted to do with it. Awesome. Awesome. Um, I mean, kind of on that, uh, the Joe, Joe show comic show wants to know kind of where that initial inspiration came from for birthright. Um, I've always been obsessed with the hero's journey, you know, and sort of the ideas of it. Uh, I like how it's a cycle. And I think if you look at like Harmon with uh, community and his obsession, I don't know if you guys know that, but like a lot of community is about the hero's journey <laughs> and about cycles of hero's journey and how like uh, these little missions we go on. And, and I, I, I've always liked that stuff. I find it very fascinating. And I find the idea of story being very fascinating. Um, that's why, you know, so much of Birthright is, is Mikey telling the story. Because I always find that I always find the ideas of like people telling stories to be interesting and sort of how you can have an unreliable narrator. Um, so with Birthright, I was obsessed with Hero's Journey. I knew that I wanted to do a book about what happens after your destiny is over. So originally, it was only going to be about that. It was only going to be about what do you do after you complete your mission. I think it's interesting, you know, when you have this thing that you really want and then you get it. What happens next? And Bendis even talked about that. Bendis and Klaus talked about how. You know, he would, there would be writers who would work really hard and they would get like one Marvel job and they were like, well, I work for Marvel, that's it. And they would disappear <laughs> because they were like, I did it. I did the thing I wanted to do. And I was like, oh my God, I can't imagine that. <laughs> but um, like, I mean, I they disappear from comics. Mm. Like they made it and now they go to something else. Uh, I couldn't imagine doing that. And so for me, but the idea of that, like, what do you do next? You know, what do you do when the hero's journey is over? What do you do when someone tells you your entire life was about this one thing? You accomplish that one thing. What do you do next? Is your life worthless? You know, are you no longer relevant? So I started playing with those ideas a lot. And I came with this back in 2007. And it just kind of sat there. Because I, I felt like it was very one note. It wasn't going to go anywhere. And originally it was, it was very different. It was about a boyfriend and a girlfriend. How the girlfriend was missing her boyfriend who went, who went missing for a day or two. Um, gradually became, because I was thinking a lot about the 80s movies and how, you know, kids would go on these adventures, and I was thinking a lot about Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, about how they went into the wardrobe as kids, and they actually aged there, but they came back, when they came back, they were de-aged being the little kids again. What if when they came back, they stayed as adults, and how that would have been a big deal? That would have changed mm -hmm. a lot of that story. So, all these things, and then I just start like, thinking a lot about family stuff, and how, um, when I was young, when I was a kid, my dad got stationed a lot. And so I kind of grew up, my, and because he was gone a lot, my mom had to have two jobs. And so I kind of grew up on my own. And I got in a lot of trouble. You know, I was just kind of a bad kid, you know, stupid kid getting in trouble all the time. I always joke around that I was raised by wolves <laughs> uh, because of that, right? Like, I was totally on my own. So I'm always like, oh, I was raised by wolves. But also with that, my dad, so my dad is such a funny guy because he wasn't around when I was a kid, really. And he wasn't really, you know, I have a distant relationship with my family. So a couple years ago, more than this, back, this is back in 2007, I went to London where my dad was living. He'd been living there for a few years. I went to London to spend two weeks with him. And that was the first time I spent two weeks with him, probably like consecutively, probably since I was like eight. And so there was this moment, right? We're on this train in Scotland. And we're going up on this train in Scotland. And we're looking out at all this like amazing view outside the train and just freaking breathtaking and there was a pair of binoculars on the table between us and i remember my dad 
looked at me and he was like, these are binoculars. They help you see far. And I was like, I'm 28 years old. Like, <laughs> and I remember grabbing and being like, oh, what magic is this? You know, and, and I realized something. In my dad's mind, I was still 10. You know, mm-hmm. like, it, because he wasn't there, I will always be younger than I am. You know, I will always... Now it's a little different, but at that time in particular, it was definitely like that. And I started thinking about that a lot, about this relationship of fathers and sons, and, you know, the idea of separation of family. And I think, you know, sometimes you have this idea of what your life is going to be like, right? You, you inadvertently can't help it. You think your life's going to be one thing. Um, and then life throws you a curveball, right? Like you, and because you think your life's going to be a certain way, you start creating this is gonna sound like total recall you start creating (laughs) false memories right like you actually visualize yourself doing these things you know you start like if someone has a this is gonna sound horrible if somebody has a kid the moment that kid's born they are planning that kid's future they're seeing stuff they're seeing them going to kindergarten they're seeing them graduate high school they're seeing them get married and have kids like even you can't help it you visualize those ideas and by visualizing you actually kind of create false memories and when that kid disappears, let's say something happens like that, a kid disappears, like a birthright, those memories are still there. And it's what makes, along with everything else, it makes that incredibly difficult. I started thinking about that a lot. And in my life, I had a few different curveballs, especially a couple of years ago. Uh, so for me, when, uh, I'll tell you what it is. So a few years ago, I went through like a super nasty divorce. And so when I went through this nasty divorce, and at the same time, I was doing some work with DC that I wasn't happy with. So it was this weird thing of, like, my whole life I wanted to work for DC Comics, and it was kind of turning out to be a disaster. On top of getting a divorce at the exact same time, I was like, oh, man, it's so crazy to think about how your life, you think it's going to be one thing. And then, it, yeah, it just goes the opposite direction. And so with Birthright, I put all of this stuff into Birthright, where you have this dad who sees his son and... and wants to continue that relationship and feels bad and feels guilty over what happened and wendy and aaron the day their son disappeared even though he came back they lost that childhood you know they lost that future they saw they lost there's that scene in issue three where they're talking about what they wanted to be when they grew up they didn't just lose that they didn't just lose their son they lost that future they lost that idea and so that is where I finally started writing Birthright number one, I put all that stuff into that. And that's where that came from. That's the inspiration from that. Wow. Yeah, seriously. That's, <laughs> Sorry, I know it's a lot of information. No, no that's no, great. It's awesome. amazing. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's a great, Thank a you for sharing. Yeah, absolutely. A little bit lighter note. Uh, Lu- yeah. Luis Rodriguez wants to know what your favorite slasher flick is. Oh, my favorite slasher flick? Yeah. Uh, Halloween. Good nice answer. Play. I yeah. love Halloween. Yeah, Halloween's great. Uh, so that's weird. I don't. So it's hard to think of Halloween as being a slasher flick, uh, even though it is. But yeah, I love Halloween. Hmm. Halloween's great. Um, he also wants to know any tips on connecting with your artist as a writer. Just open communication. Just try. And I think it's good to start small. Like with with Mike and I, we did the very first thing we worked on was the first issue of Masks and Mobsters, and that was before it was intended to be a series. It was just a one-off thing we were going to put online for free. Um, and so we just started off small with that and that helped us develop that relationship and just a lot of communication like they know they can ask me anything and i always tell them like you know i don't mind changing just talk to me just talk to me like let's just all let's make this comic together um i went to art school 
um, and I worked as an art director, and so I'm kind of used to dealing with artists, and I used to work in production and do art stuff. So I think that helps me a little bit in being able to communicate with the artists. Who knows? My, so my artists might hate me, but uh, <laughs> like I know, I know I get along really well with Mike. I know Mike and I are on the same page with everything. I mean, there's a, we're at a point now where I don't see much after the roughs. Like I see the roughs, and I see some parts of the pencils, and then I just get the inks. Like we, I, he doesn't have to stop and ask me for stuff. Like once we, like we did the. We did an issue of Nailbiter today, actually, where he roughed out the whole issue, sent it to me. I went over it, had, like, I think I had, like, three notes. It was really simple stuff. Because Mike just knows. Mike knows what I want. Mike knows the weird ticks I have. And I just tell him, like, I, I talk about the things I am obsessed with with comic books. I have weird little obsessions with storytelling and comics that I'm, like, really consistent with. And so I just relay that information to them. Like, I don't sit there and try to, like, pussyfoot around it. I just tell them. Like, look, there are certain things I'm obsessed about. It might seem weird. Let's talk about it, you know? And and so we... I like things being consistent. I like things being really consistent. So we uh, I just just talk with them. I think that's the thing. you got to have really good communication and just understand that if you are working with an artist, what took you maybe an hour to write, no matter how much thought you put into it, it took you an hour at your computer to write a one page, right? Maybe longer, give or take. It's going to take them a day or two. Mm. Um, and just be really respectful of that. Understand that they're you. They're always going to put more thought onto that page than you did, right? They just will. They're staring at it <laughs> for hours, <laughs> for hours staring at. I mean, could you imagine taking just take one page of your script, just one page of it, just screw everything else, just take that one page and just stare at it for a day, for like eight to ten hours, just stare at it. You're gonna think of shit. You're gonna <laughs> think of things. You know, it's like, you know, and then and then have to relay that from another, you know, into a completely other medium using your imagination. You're, tra- you're having to translate this person's imagination onto a page, and it takes you eight hours. Some people take some longer. You're gonna think about things. You know, be understanding of that. Be respectful of that, and and sort of uh, just be really open with communication. I think is the is the key. Uh, you're gonna want to get along with them. You know. Because that's where the best stuff comes from. You talk about guys like, you know, look at Brubaker and Phillips on Criminal. Those guys are really close, and they continue working with each other because they've developed this relationship. And so just keep that in mind when you're trying to work with them. Is that, um, you know, they're they're on the edge of going crazy. So <laughs> just try to be understanding of that. Awesome, awesome. Um, and uh, Sammy Cassell. Um, but he he wrote on Twitter to go to go to Facebook because this question was too long uh, for 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 Twitter. We already answered a lot of what he asked. He asked about inspiration for Nailbiter and Birthright, but he wants to know specifically why make Finch an army interrogator instead of the normal soldier or military police. He says, "Big fan, writer of the year," in his opinion. Oh, thank you, Sammy. Um, why an army interrogator? Because uh, that's the branch that are interrogators. Um, <laughs> It's usually army. Army. Army is the branch that has the interrogators. Um, at one point, and if you actually look at early press releases and stuff, it actually says he worked for the NSA. Because I originally was going to have him work for the NSA, and then it was explained to me by someone who is close to me who works for the NSA that they don't do that. <laughs> um, that that was army, and so I was like, oh, so I started doing research on that. I bought a couple of books. I had books sent to me, and started realizing like, oh, well, this fits, and I wanted somebody. Who wasn't just a cop, just a straight up cop. I wanted someone who was an interrogator and someone who at some point in time did torture people to get information. Which is so crazy considering what's going on with the CIA this week. But um, 
yeah, I wanted somebody who had, at one point had tortured people uh, because it put him in a mind state similar to serial killers. Because you, you know, torture experts are people, information extraction specialists are people who understand human nature. That's their job. And it is their job to hurt you to a point where they get what they want, regardless if it's mentally or physically. And I felt like that was really interesting for someone to do that, to be around a bunch of serial killers, because something that's going to come up later is that Warren is going to point that out. Like, how are you any different from me? Like, you killed somebody getting what you wanted. I killed someone getting what I wanted. And talk about those ideas of how does does Finch enjoy what he does? Was it only for his job or did he enjoy hurting people? Um you know, that puts him in, in line for somebody who could eventually become a serial killer. And he did kill somebody while he was torturing them, hmm. you know, while he was interrogating them. So that's why. That's why he's a interrogator until it's just a cop. Hmm. And I also didn't want to have too much authority either. I didn't want him to be straight up like a cop showing up. I wanted him to be kind of on the outskirts of, of law uh, and be, being a specialist on something. Cool. So, yeah. Awesome. Um, and final question. We'll go. We'll let's. Uh, and with something yeah. light, uh, this is from L- Logan Rowland. He says, <laughs> do you ever have nightmares about your characters? Uh, yeah, wow. <laughs> kind of, <laughs> uh, it's really weird. I have more nightmares about making the comics than the comics. <laughs> um, just because things are so intense sometimes. Um, you know, like I think I- I've had a couple nightmares about Nailbiter, but they've been more about me digging too much into research about that world, I think, than anything else. Um, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. I had a weird nightmares about predators when I was working on Predator, <laughs> which I don't think. <laughs> but that's only because those meetings were so intense. You have no idea, dude. Like those meetings we were doing were so intense, and it was like, you know, none of us ever yelled at each other, but there was definitely like, you know moments of tenseness because you just have a bunch of creative people in a room trying to figure out how to do 17 comic books spread out over a few months and then trying to um yeah man it was just super intense sometimes and so i would go home and i would have these nightmares about predators chasing me uh, <laughs> while i was working on that comic uh but not so much nailbiter i think that's what people always expect they always think i'm gonna be like oh yeah nailbiter total nightmare but no so it was it's not so bad i've been working on that book for so long on the side that I think, like, it's been a much more of a slow process. Um, like, I'll have weird dreams about serial killers, I think, but not about the characters in the book. Like, like Warren isn't haunting me. I'm not mm. going to get all super meta on it. <laughs> um, you know, that's the thing even with the Bendis stuff. Like, I felt weird about putting Brian in the book. And that was the thing. People kept thinking I was going to kill Brian off. <laughs> and I was like, dude, I have seen that man play with his children. I cannot <laughs> kill him. There's no way. <laughs> Is there um, anything else you guys have you want to know about any of the books? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I will confess my souls to you. <laughs> You've already done a lot of confessing to us. And... Yeah. Well, the whole thing, divorce. I've talked about the divorce thing before. People know that, like, when I got divorced, it was, like, super messy, and it was in the middle of... I, I talked about this openly before. It's not like I revealed anything. That in the middle of getting divorced was, like, right when I was having a hard time at DC. And mm-hmm. so, uh, yeah, man. Like, I think that was a big catalyst in me sort of... Um, figuring things out on the writing side of things that, and then having Scott ask me where, why my script sucked <laughs> added up <laughs> together. Well, man, like, you're, you're, a, you're been on fire in 2014. I mean, um, can, can you live up to it in 2015? That's the question. 
Uh, I don't know. So at, at New York Comic Con, this guy comes up to me. I'm sitting there signing, and, I, and it was like an awesome day. Like I had a good line, and things were good. I felt like it was a good crowd. And so it was toward the end of one of the bigger signings. This guy comes up to me. He's like, "Hey, man, fucking, I love Nail Biter. I love Ghosted. I love Birthright. Birthright Birth just came out that week. Oh my god, this is so good. This is so good." And then he says, "Oh, this is so good." When are you gonna fuck up? <laughs> <laughs> and I was just like, dude, I don't know, man. Why are you asking? What? Like, what are you doing? You're messing me up. And uh, so I get nervous about it all the time. And it, it is something that comes up. People ask you that. They're just like, so what's next, man? How are you gonna top this? And I'm like, I don't know. Shut up. Like, let me just make comic books over here. Leave me alone. Let me live in my cave. Um, yeah, I'm really happy with this year, and I, I'm glad that people have been receptive to it. And like I said, sometimes it's hard to tell what's real and what's not. You know, what's just the internet and what's reality. Like that's why I like talking to people like you, like the podcast. I like talking to retailers a lot and hearing their feedback on things because they're really right there. You know, like they really do know what's selling, what's not. Because mm-hmm. um, you can you can hype up whatever you want on the internet. It doesn't mean anything. You can <laughs> right. talk about this comic book being amazing and it's selling two thousand copies every month. Right. Um, it's hard to to separate the two, but it is cool to to hear from people saying that they thought I did a good job this year. And um, I'm happy with it. Like I'm the happiest I think I've ever been in my career. Um, we'll see what the next couple books are are gonna be like. Um, yeah, it'll be interesting. Next year will be interesting because I'm cutting back on some stuff, so we'll we will see. And are you 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 think you're gonna be sticking with creator on stuff, or you think you might hit up Marvel or DC at some point again? That is the, the eternal debate. <laughs> um, you know, uh, we'll see. I don't know. Like, there's stuff that's going on. I actually did something for Marvel over the summer that. Um, got pushed back and so i don't know when it's coming out so it's been over the summer with them uh it's weird because a lot of people that work at both companies i really like like i like people at marvel mm-hmm. i like people at dc um and there's a lot of characters i want to work on it's just a matter of of i could be a control freak about things and so if i don't feel like i can have that level of control that i like on my creator own books it's hard for me to give up that control like it has to be the right circumstances for me to give up that control right and if I can't really get that with a publisher, but it doesn't matter who they are, mm-hmm. I get I get the shakes about <laughs> working with them. Um, I mean, I, I look at the work I've done. Like, I mean, we, we, we've talked about that people seem to be the most responsive to our Nail Biter Birthright and Ghosted. Mm-hmm. And those are the three books where I had the absolute most freedom. And I, I can't help but look at that and be like, oh, the three books I had the most freedom are the ones that people liked the most. Right. Maybe I should keep rolling with that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Why mess with success? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, but it's rough. There are times there are people at the companies that will reach out to me sometimes, and I've said no a lot Mm -hmm. over the last year, but sometimes they come to you and and they offer something, and I have to, like, take a walk. You know, I have to, like, think about it. Yeah. uh, So, yeah, we'll see. Cool, man. Well, I'll say this. Every time I talk to you, I tell you that I love that one issue that you did with Damien in the Batman Superman. Oh, man, yeah, dude. That was... uh, Oh my god, you and me, that was four years ago. Yeah. So nutty. Yeah, I loved writing that one. I miss Damien. That's why I still read Batman and Robin. Um, that's the secret why I still read Batman and Robin. Uh, I'm like, oh man, come on, just bring him back. Let's just do this. Let's just have him running around. Let's give him his own book. Um, yeah, I loved writing that kid. That was like one of my favorite things I've ever done was that issue. I loved uh, I loved that one. It was such a, such a fun, fun time doing Damien. He's just a little shit. That's actually a big one too. I realize how much I like writing characters who are little little shits because <laughs> that that leads into ghosted because Jackson is kind of a shit. You look <laughs> at Predator, Galgo is kind of a crappy person. You look at Robocop, 
Killian is a crappy person. Uh, Captain Midnight, there's a couple characters in there who are kind of like jerks. I figured out writing that issue that I love writing jerks, and so that dominoed into everything else I write. <laughs> everything I write always has jerks in it. Like, if anyone wants to see a through line with all of my work, you'll find a jerk in there. <laughs> Awesome. I think that's a great way to close everything out yeah. here. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot, guys. Sorry for rambling so much. No, man, it was, it was awesome. awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much, everybody. Make sure you check out all of uh, Joshua's work. Uh, so we got Ghosted. We've got Birthright. We've got Nailbiter. We've got uh, Predator. We've got uh, Captain Midnight. Did I get everything? Is Robocop? I think you got it, y'all. Robocop's done, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Robocop, yeah, we got it all. You're good. Yeah, yeah. Good. <laughs> um, check out all that work. And Joshua, thank you so much. Um, for joining us talking yeah. comics and have an awesome new year, man. You too, man. Thanks for the happy holidays, guys. All right. All right. We are back, and mysteriously, Stephanie is also back with us to close out the show. Uh, thank you so much to Joshua Williamson for talking with us. He is awesome. Uh, make sure to pick out and check out his books if you haven't done so yet. Um, yeah, and so really quick um, before we, we skedaddle out of here, uh, no new releases this week. Um if you guys might have noticed, uh, we started something, um, and I want to give credit where credit is due. We talked about this on Sunday, and on Monday, Stephanie had drawn it up and made it a real, tangible thing. Uh, we started a Patreon. So if people don't know what a Patreon is, and you might, we might sort of announce, you might not be sure what it is. It's tequila, right? It's tequila, yes. <laughs> um, what it is, is a way for people to support artistic endeavors. Uh, and it's di- it differs from Kickstarter in this. It's not one major huge campaign that runs for a very long time or runs for a month and then it's a one-time thing. This is a recurring monthly subscription, uh, for lack of a better term, a, a-, a pledge uh, that in turn you get a reward for, but it also helps us do a few things. It helps us keep producing the content we're producing um, because all of this costs money, of course, and we could go... We I've, We've been approached many times about ads but i'm not going to put ads on the site if they don't fit with the site you're not going to see any online poker ads you know on our site you're not going <laughs> to you're not going to see a lot of completely incongruous crap people be losing their comic money yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um because that's not what we're about you know we're, it's a passion project it's 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 by fans for fans and we want to keep it that way but in order to keep it that way um there there has to be a little bit of something coming in uh we also want to of course upgrade all of our equipment um which you know we've done slowly over time but bob and steve are still using the same microphones they were using four years ago when we started the show so we want we want to upgrade those and they're great mics but we you know you you want you need to keep pushing and or you know you you regress look how great stephanie's sounding like exactly (laughs) Uh, um and you know there's other things we want to do too obviously there's it, there's other shows we want to make. There's other things we want to do. There's people who have spent years, months, weeks, whatever it might be, producing content at a high level for absolutely no compensation. And if we get enough, we would love to be able to, after we take care of, obviously, all of the overhead for the site, be able to compensate people in some small way for what it is that they do. Um, it'll just allow us to be better at what it is that we do. Um, we've already had a, a few people pledge and it's amazing. It's, it's amazing and humbling that you people are willing to give a recurring amount of money to us over amount of time. And we promise we hold that responsibility sacred and we will do mm-hmm. everything we can to produce for you guys the highest level of content. Um, 
of course there are little rewards you know like i said for doing it and if you go to you know patreon.com slash talking comics you will see all those rewards and we'll post a link to it along with the podcast every week so you guys can check out if you want to we're not going to do a lot of shilling for it i'm not going to talk about on every show um that's not what this is about obviously uh but we would love it for you guys to to be part of our family and if we start getting enough in we can start producing more stuff not only for the site but exclusively for people who are who are you know obviously our most avid fans um and we would love to be able to do that so you know we have a lot of big plans coming in the new year for talking comics this is just one of them um and i really hope you guys will at least take a look at the page and give whatever you can you can give a dollar and if here's the the fact guys if everyone who listened to the podcast gave a dollar every month, we would be completely set <laughs> for mm-hmm. forever, honestly, yeah, with, for yeah. you guys. We, we could do so many amazing things. So that, that, think about that. If you think that there's something you can give, a dollar a month can, can do a big, big thing. I feel like I'm like Sally Struthers or something right you now. You need a little <laughs> bell. Yeah, yeah. I need a little, <laughs> a little, little, little child, a little homeless child or something that I have a picture yeah. of. Let's get the tote board out. Yeah. Do you, you want to help a it. little boy like me <laughs> exactly. have a podcast? <laughs> uh, okay, that just sounded creepy. It, <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So I pl- could do creepier. So, please, guys, please if don't. you get... If you you get a chance to check it out um, and thank you to everybody who listens. Thank you to everybody who gives, who doesn't give. You guys are the reason why we do it. So thank you so much. Um, If you guys want to touch us for any other reason, um, podcast at talkingcomicbooks.com. You can at Talking Comics on Twitter and facebook.com slash Talking Comics. Please go to talkingcomicbooks.com for all of the awesome content from from our creators, from our contributors (laughs) Uh, who produce awesome stuff every single week, every single day. Um, check out our many, many podcasts. Uh, the Misfits with Stephanie Cook, Mara Wood, and Melissa Megan. Um, you guys are doing best of 2014 lists right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just did TV? We did. And next week, uh, we're doing uh, video games. And we're going to have a very special guest uh, that we've poached from Talking Games. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> awesome to hear. Awesome to hear. Um so we also have obviously talking movies uh, with Brian Verderosa. Um, they just re- reviewed the Babadook. The I want to see that movie so bad. The new horror movie that, that just came out. So check that out. Talking Valiant with Adam Shaw and uh, Talking Games, of course, with Steve Say, Justin Townsend, Rob Newmeyer, and Jackie Turner. Yeah. Um, you guys have a listener question show coming out this week. This week is listener questions and our last what did you play this week for the year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then um, at the same time when you get the Talking Comics best of 2014 lists, you'll be getting the Talking Games best of 2014 mm-hmm. no, deliberations. We're gonna, we're gonna fight. Um, <laughs> so, so make sure you guys check that out, please. Um, you know, we're, we're a family of podcasts here and uh, we believe in each and every one of them. Uh, Bob, I know you had a message for everybody yeah. before we get out of here. Well, we are on... You know, the short end of the year here, we're getting into the Christmas season. So I'd just like to take a quick moment to extend the heartfelt best wishes for a glorious holiday from all of us in the Talking Comic family to all the listeners, contributors, readers, the creators who graced us with their presence and their families as well. And may I also say that this time of the year can be very troubling for those who are alone. So make an effort to reach out to those people in your own experience who might Mm -hmm. be alone this year. They'll certainly appreciate it, and you'll feel better for it, too. Absolutely. And if you guys are lonely, you can always reach out to us. Yes, absolutely, you can. Uh, very nice. Um, many ways to get a hold of us, obviously. Um, I am. I'll, we always give our Twitters. I'll give my email as well. I'm at Bobby Shortle on Twitter, and it's Bobby at TalkingComicBooks.com. Anything you want to talk about, you guys can contact me. Steve? Uh, my Twitter handle is at dead underscore anchorus. 
And I believe my email is uh, Steve Say at TalkingComicBooks.com. It absolutely is. Stephanie. Uh, I'm at HelloCookie on Twitter. And you could email me, but honest to goodness, Twitter is the best way to get a hold of me because <laughs> I am the worst. But if you do want to send me a message in more than 140 characters, it's Stephanie Cook. Cook has an E on the end at TalkingComicBooks.com. And Bob, your email address. Bob Ryer at TalkingComicBooks.com. <laughs> um, so thank you guys so much uh, for listening. This won't be the last time you hear us this year, but this is the last time that we'll be recording uh, this year. So that's why it seems like a kind of like, you know, farewell to the year from us. Mm-hmm. But please stay tuned. Listen to our best of 2014 shows. Keep sending your feedback over those weeks and let us know um, what you think of everything that's going on. And then we will be back doing recording new episodes uh, for our best 2014 actual award show that yeah. we're going to do. But until then, for Steve, cheers, Bob, happy Hanukkah, and Stephanie, hola, bye-bye. Until next year on Talking Comics, to be continued.